The Gun Dog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by Onyx Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the Onyx Hunt app from your phone's app store today and use my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. I also want to bring to you Yukonuba Sporting Dog, the premium performance 3020 blend. For the last 50 years, Yukonuba has created premium nutrition that unlocks the power and potential within. From the unstoppable performance of the sporting dogs to the life-saving abilities of working dogs to the incredible companionship of service animals and family pets. Check out Yukonuba Sporting Dog today and go pick up a bag of the 3020 Premium Performance Blend. And guys, last but not least, I want to thank my affiliates, Lion Country Supply and Garmin Fish and Hunt. Go check them out today for the spring training season. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. And this one here, y'all gonna have a whole lot of information thrown at you. I'm gonna just tell you now, but it is probably the most in-depth, um, the most in-depth analysis and observation of pointer history. My buddy Steeple Bell is always very, very thorough about everything that's been you know, going on since the first pointers came over here. You know, we get into a little bit about, you know, European uh, pointer history, but we really bring it on over here to America across the pond. Um, just a, a heads up, guys, go to the Flush TV. Look up the Flush TV podcast from Pheasants Forever. Um, I just had an episode there. It was entitled uh, Hunting for Change. And I want to thank Travis Frank for giving me the opportunity and the folks at Pheasants Forever. Um, also, guys, there are a number of things that I got stirring in the pot. Um, you know, so look, be on the lookout for that. Um, I've got... You know, the Minority Outdoor Alliance nonprofit coming out um, that I'm working on at the moment um, to increase some opportunities. And I'll get into that, you know, a, a little bit later on. Um, and I have got an article for Outdoor Life magazine that's also coming uh, for you guys to take a read. Um, there are also some more things kind of stirring in the pot. So all of that being said, um, I really just want to kind of prep y'all for everything in the world that I got going on <laughs> these days. It's been a, lot, a busy last few weeks. With that being said, um, I want to go ahead and get you all into the episode with Steeple Bell. Um, this is the Gun Dog Notebook podcast uh, with, uh, or episode 102, not with, but episode 102. And uh, it's entitled Pape. And you will find out why Pape is such a unique name in pointerdom. All right, guys, catch y'all on the backside. on another episode of the gun dog notebook podcast now steeple i have probably talked to you for in, in the last few days how many years of worth of, of history do you think we've started we we've gone over history of the dogs uh -huh. probably a couple hundred uh of years okay um 
since 1844 as the oldest known names that we can go back to uh, and, you know, general things before that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, one of the aspects of the way I've been always looking at these dogs is um, going backwards down a you know a father son line, you know, to find out the oldest ancestors, or going backwards on a mother daughter line, looking for the oldest mother daughter ancestors, mm-hmm. and such of, of names that we can actually, you know, put our finger on, you know, as being the head of a family tree for dogs that are still living today. A lot of dog history, you know, wants to begin very early on with what I often call the art history lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that you know, about the um, about the Project Upland article I wrote, which, you know, you gave me some very constructive criticism. So I appreciate that. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a lot of you know, references to these dogs and old paintings and, you know, the art history part of it um, that, you know, put these dogs back several centuries before that. But in my mind, I have a hard time thinking that they're actually really the same dogs because, you know, for one, we have no link from those dogs to the present. And the other thing is, is that, you know, we're basically talking about gun dogs and, you know, some of the oldest of those paintings and such were before there were even any real guns. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember the exact date, but I think it's somewhere around, you know, 1810 or 1820 that the first percussion cap uh, you know, muzzle loading shotguns were developed. You know, the um, prior to that, there were they were flintlock guns, and you know, the flint would strike and fizzle the powder that was put into a pan for a couple of seconds before the gun would go bang. And and the time that it took from when you pulled the trigger to the gun that went bang that what they call lock time was variable and it, it made it difficult to shoot something on a, on, you know, flying on a wing. And um, although there were what they called fouling pieces, you know, prior to percussion cap guns, you kind of got to think that most of those were used for shooting, you know, birds on the ground or up in a roost or something and, and right. not really on the wing just because they weren't, terribly practical for that purpose. And, right. you know, so somewhere around, you know, 1820 or so, you know, becomes the, the very first practical shotguns that were um, kind of invented by one guy, uh, Manton, who put together that configuration of a double barrel side-by-side hammer 
you know, double hammered shotgun, you know, that struck percussion caps Mm -hmm. and such and made that first, you know, kind of English game gun, you know, prototype English game gun. Uh, And we find that, you know, uh, one of the guys that actually worked for Manson was a gunmaker named Lang. Mm -hmm. And some of the oldest dogs on record were actually a dog that was owned by Mr. Lang. Right. The gunmaker. Um, you know, so that evolution of uh you know, the shotgun and the ev- the evolution, you know, development of the modern pointer, you know, kind of went hand in hand. Um when we go back to the oldest of the different female lines. Um, we go back to another gunmaker, uh, William Rochester Pape, who was mm-hmm. famous for having solid black pointers. Um, and, you know, one of the oldest uh, of the American matriarch pointers was a solid black, uh, you know, pointer from the Pape line. Right. And, and Pape, Pape was also fairly instrumental in, you know, development of what we think of as a modern shotgun. And he was one of the first guys to, uh, for example, do choke boring, you know, uh, rather than just a cylinder barrel. Um, You know, so he was pretty, pretty important in the world of making guns, too, uh, in that. And it's, it's really a. You know, pretty interesting story how very quickly the dogs changed to meet that new requirement of hunting style. Right. So now when you when you talk about how quickly they changed, let's you know, and I and I do want to get to Pape's dogs, too. But let's go to um, let's start with the various like herds of dogs and, 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 and how the idea of a pedigree even came about let's start there okay so prior to this one particular event in um 1844 i believe i'm sitting here looking at my notes to try to um take that out uh i believe it was 1844 um there was a famous count sale. Um, prior to that, most of the dogs in a kennel, the breeding females in a kennel, would all be mother, daughter, sister, aunts. You know, a herd, much the way that a herd of cattle was kept. And the owner of that kennel would bring in a particular stud dog for all of his females that year. Um, much the way that we we breed cattle. Uh, you know, he could use that same stud dog for a couple of years, and then as that stud dog's daughters developed, he would, you know, the owner of the kennel would move to a different stud dog. But most all of the females were, you know, very closely re- related to that. Mm-hmm. So we look at those as herds or strains of dogs. Um, One of the most famous 
strains of dogs and, and pointers in England were uh, these dogs that were owned by Mr. Thomas Webb Edge. Yep. Um, and he died in 1844. And that, that year, his kennel was sold at a public auction. Um, and the dogs in his kennel uh, really sort of begin the concept of changing from that herd breeding mentality to a pedigree-based breeding mentality because people wanted to trace their dogs back to they they you know the future breeding of those ed, edge you know auction dogs led to pedigrees where people would trace the dog that they had or you know they were breeding back to one of those dogs that were sold at the auction okay you know it, it um at that point the actual you know, pedigree became more important than, you know, the strain of the herd that the dog came from. Right. And, you know, it's also at a time, 1844, you know, into the Victorian era, era where um, it was no longer a landed gentry that could have such a kennel you know, individual up and coming businessmen could have individually afford to own a dog or two mm -hmm. um, and such, you know, so you, you see the breakup of uh, the herds into individual ownership at that time. And, and in the world of individual ownership, the pedigree becomes a lot more important. And so, you know, the, the oldest that we can go back to, uh, you know, pedigree, take a living dog back to, you know, going back father, son in its pedigree to the oldest that we can find. Um, we find that it's the gunmaker Lang, Joseph Lang, a uh, senior's dog named Frank. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was uh, bred breeding somewhere around 1850. Um, he predates any of the dog shows or field trials and stuff. So there's no record of him there other than, you know, finding him in the pedigrees of the earliest dogs and such. But we, we know a few things about him. Um, we know that he was considered a smaller, swifter, leaner dog than most of the heavyweight pointer dogs at that time. Right. right. Um, and that is pretty much the direction that the pointer breeders would head in getting smaller, swifter dogs um, to match the, you know, gun technology that was being developed and the style of hunting that, followed that type of gun technology and such was the desire for that smaller, swifter dog that could, could cover distance and right. such. And, um, and, and if I'm, if, and if I'm right about this, they also, um, would you say that that ideology came 
around it, it was, I guess, synonymous to them wanting to beat them setters in field trials because the setters were also ruling the roost at the time. Well, that's much more of what the Americans did. OK. Um, you know, I, I'm talking about Joseph Lang and yeah. Thomas Hedges. That's we're still in England, we're still in England. So that um, I, that idea the, hadn't trans hadn't come over, hadn't. We'll, we'll move move forward from Langs Frank to a couple of dogs in that line, White House's Hamlet and mm-hmm. Price's Bang. Um, and that's where we really start to get – Price's Bang is where we really start to get uh, point – you know, the, the modern type of pointer – the modern type of pointer of – 1870 or whatever okay. being brought over to America. Okay. And that's where um, we start with the, and then the Americans will take that smaller, swifter, uh, ideology sort of thing and put it on steroids. Gotcha. Okay. You know, and, and, and really at that point, greatly reduce the size of, of the dog. Remember that when, for example, Lighthouse's Hamlet was, in a dog show, mm-hmm. he was considered a lightweight dog. They would they would divide the the, the pointers into two classes, heavyweights and lightweights. And mm-hmm. and Hamlet was considered a lightweight dog. Right. And yet he was still like 65 pounds. Um, you know, so you can imagine that the heavyweight dogs were dogs that were 70 pounds or more. Right. Which is um, that's huge for today's standard. Good yeah, lord. And, and uh, you know, so the you know, the great you know, even though White House's Hamlet was greatly reduced in size and such on that earliest ideal of a pointer, um, he still wasn't, you know, a small dog. Uh, Americans would would take that much further. Right. You know, um, in that respect. Uh, and the American pedigrees and, and kennel registrations and such um, started with this thing called the American Kennel Register, which was the Arnold Burgess version in which people would submit their dog's pedigree by affidavit, you know, say, here's my dog's pedigree. I claim that it's true. Mm-hmm. And they would publish that. Um, you know, so not all of the information reliable in the Amer- is is all that reliable in the American Kennel Register. And uh, Dr. Nicholas Rowe started a few years later something called the National Kennel Club Registry, um, which he maintained for several years, and actually sold that registry to the American Kennel Club, mm-hmm. um, which published his registry as their very first stud book. Um, Dr. Nicholas Rowe would later become the editor of the American field and start what we know as the field dog stud book in the year 1900. Okay. But those earliest American pedigrees are found in the American kennel registry or, uh, the AKC stud books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so most of the dogs that were imported from England in that period of time 
were registered as imported uh, dogs to those very earliest registries. Right. You know, and, and some of them we have dates on and, and pretty reliable pedigrees. Other, other ones, it just simply says that it was imported by Mr. So-and-so on such and such, uh, of such and such city or something like that. Right. Um, the earliest authors of all of that early pedigree stuff are, you know, obviously, uh, Hawkwall, mm-hmm. Albert Hawkwall and, um, major Taylor's, uh, record of record of the field trials, um, you know, gives us, you know, that earliest information. I, I think in one of our previous conversations, I referred to Huckwalt's book as being uh, <laughs> the, the, yellow, bone book. the bone book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can go back so far and then, you know, find that name in the Huckwalt book. He might not actually say anything more than that name. Like he'll tell you, oh, the St. Louis Kennel Club imported this dog, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You know, and you, and you get, Practically no information other than that name, but that's that you know you're you're taking a line of dogs back to find them in Hawkwatt's phone book. Uh, in that respect, um, and such. The thing about these changes in the dogs also came with a lot of the changes in understanding of. Um, Genetics and inheritance. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been inheritance in the Victorian days, but it's what we would call genetics today. Uh, remember, that's you know the the earliest days of Darwin and right. and and uh, it was Darwin that, and Galton's, right? Well, Galton was. I think he was a nephew of Darwin. Okay, and he was like one of the greatest crackpot Victorian scientists that ever existed and he created all these marvelous things that we use today like he created the idea of statistical differences mm-hmm. he created the idea of identifying people by their fingerprints um and those kind of things but he did it in such a crackpot way that he like he he thought that we he could use the traits of people's fingerprints to identify who would be a criminal. Oh, wow. Um, rather, rather than actually, you know, each individual person has a unique identity or whatever he thought it was, you know, the age of phrenology where they studied people's bumps on their heads. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was all sorts of crackpot theories of inheritance and such. And, and one of the things that's been very persistent is, Galton's law of inheritance, which is the idea that you know each parent contributes fifty percent, each grandparent contributes twenty five percent, each great grandparent contributes twelve and a half percent of the blood, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and on back to you know six and a quarter and three and an eighth, and you know for each generation further back, it, it's it's a smaller percentage of the blood uh, passed on. You know, and that it's all that's in some sort of equal proportions um, and such. And, and we still use that basic theory to, for example, calculate a COI number mm-hmm. for a dog today. 
But almost the moment that that theory was written, they discovered X and Y chromosomes in microscopic studies. And the idea that things were sex-linked, you know, that a Y chromosome was passed on exclusively father-son um, and such, basically kind of made that Dalton's theory of inheritance, that distribution of bloodlines, you know, and percentages of bloods and stuff, it kind of just made that bunk, but nobody really wanted to glom onto that. Um, it, Dalton's law of inheritance was very important to, like, the eugenics uh, movement and and all of the ugly undertones of racial discrimination that that brought about, you know, whether somebody was one eighth of percent black was still black or right. those sort of things. I mean, it, it, it was a, a theory that was, you know, well, it still kind of shows it itself used, up today. Hmm? It still shows up today. I mean, Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and we still, and we still calculate COI numbers for these dogs yeah. uh, because it is a practical um, tool but it's never been, you know, particularly valid. Mm -hmm. It ignores the idea that there are traits that come exclusively father son, and you know, fast forward now to you know, to like the 1990s, they discover mitochondrial DNA, um, a, a DNA that's found in the mitochondria of a cell that's passed exclusively from the mother. Right. Um, you know, so now you have a, a, a batch of inheritance that's exclusively passed down mother, daughter, mother, daughter. And you have a batch of inheritance, a Y chromosome that's passed down exclusively father, son, father, son. Um, you know, and, you know, prior to the idea of mitochondrial DNA, you had the X chromosome traits and trying to calculate X factor genetics, which is possible, but it's really messy um, and such. The idea of mitochondrial DNA, you know, made a very direct link to the importance of mother-daughter inheritance and such. Right, right. And and, and, and that's where we're leading today, but I, I'm, you know, just and, I'm following yeah, you. Yeah, the, the, the idea of mitochondrial DNA, um, the mitochondria in each cell is that cell's power plant. Mm -hmm. It's what converts um, a blood sugar chemical into energy, a molecule that, an ATP molecule that produces energy for that cell's metabolism. Mm -hmm. You know, so the measurement of the efficiency of that conversion determines the metabolism of the animal that it's in. Um, and metabolism leads to all these things like strength and stamina and stuff that are desirable traits of the dog. You know, we find that those are things that come particularly from that mother-daughter line. Now, that's not an exclusive thing for that. You know, a dog can have a really great metabolism, but if he's not, you know, structurally put together well, he's still not going to run well. Right. It, all of that kind of goes out the window. That, he's got to have a certain, you know, combination of a physical confirmation, 
um, you know, in addition to that metabolism to support a high performance. Right. So do you think that's why, and, and I know I'm skipping a couple of years, but I just it thought about it. I thought about it now. Do you think that's why that there was such a connection between the bench show trial or the bench trials or the bench shows, I'm sorry, and field trials early on? It wasn't really a division before then, before, you know, you know, at that time, it was like people cared about confirmation, but then they also cared about performance. Yes, and also the the standards of confirmation were judged on a lot more physical attributes rather than a beauty pageant kind of attributes that we have today. That, is, that you know, that the dog shows have kind of evolved into. I mean, you know, you won't really see it in the dog show pointers and setters and stuff, but. Look at the changes that the dog shows made on a dog like a bulldog or a pug or, you know, even German shepherds and, you know, how they crouch, German shepherds crouch their, their hind legs now and such. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are our dog show attributes of, you know, the beauty pageant kind of judging. Um, and, you know, to some extent, pointers and setters never suffered that much in in the dog show world uh you know there um we'll get into it later but there was you know one of the the more important female lines of setters actually spent many generations as a dog dog show champions you know before coming you know, left the field trial world, spent many generations in, in the dog in the dog shows as dog show champions before coming back to the field trial world and, and breeding champion, you know, uh, field trial setters. Right. Um, and such. Uh, that, you know, the... But the earliest dog shows, you know, the... Dog shows predated field trials by a few years and, and such. And those earliest dog shows were, you know, much more judged on that sort of physicality of the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, that very first dog show was actually sponsored by uh, Pape, the gun maker who had the black pointers. Mm-hmm. Um in partnership with a man, I can't. I want to say his name was Osborne. I'd have to actually look that up. But uh, um, he's over Bell's Ale, right? And he Bass Ale. Bass Ale. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, he was a distributor for the Bass Ale Brewing Company, mm-hmm. and they put on the Bass Ale Brewing Company put on a county fair livestock type show. And uh, Pape convinced him to add pointers and setters to that in that livestock show. And and that became what is known as the very first dog show. And and the winner, the winners of that dog show were awarded uh, Pape shotguns as their prize. Uh, And such, you know, so Pape was 
in that sort of judging standards very early on. Mm-hmm. Although he never competed with any of his own dogs in the shows that he sponsored. So we have very little record of Pape's dogs that he owned himself. Right. It's it's only the dogs that Pape sold to the public that actually, um, you know, made it into our, our, uh, our history. Mm-hmm. Um, the first of the Pape dogs to come to America came, were brought over by a guy named Colonel York. And it was a dog named Otto and a female named Nellie. And that Nellie would go on to become one of the most important matriarchs of the American dogs um, and such, and was recognized early on uh, as, as that, but very little was actually ever written about Nellie herself. Right. But we um, do know that she was, I mean, she was, you know, adhered to the whole Pape strain, though. I mean, as far as the look yeah, and all was, of that. She was a, she was a solid black dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know we we do know that, and we and since we only see her in the pedigrees of other dogs, um, the generations before her are very limited and often very confusing. Uh. A, 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 you know, a fair amount of discrepancy there, but mm-hmm. we do know that Nellie was owned by a Mr. Waddell, and we can trace Mr. Waddell's movements across the nation from where where it was that Nellie had litters. Um, Waddell ob- obtained Nellie in the Hartford, Connecticut area. Um. He was originally from Western Pennsylvania, and his dogs uh, appeared in the early uh, Dayton, Ohio dog shows. Okay. Um, and in conjunction with that, some of Nellie's earliest offspring were also appeared in the Dayton, Ohio dog shows with U.R. Fischl, the guy who's famous for Fischl's Frank. Okay. Um, but this was this was many many decades before Official Frank. Um, you are official had a had a daughter of Nellie or a granddaughter of Nellie named Josie. Um, Josie was a daughter of Waddell's Topsy, and so she was a granddaughter of of Nellie. So we got um, Nellie, Topsy, Josie. And, and Josie, Josie was the the mother of a dog named Nellie Bang. Okay. Um, when Josie was first bred to the Price's Bang imports uh, in the 1880s or so. So, you know, that's some of the more prominent people that involved them. You know, so we, we do know that history of Nellie. And then we also know that Mr. Waddell eventually moved from Western Pennsylvania to, to Topeka, Kansas. Okay. And so there's another whole batch of Nellie offspring that, 
of, you know, first appeared in the Topeka, Kansas area, and, and a fair number of those Topeka, Kansas dogs actually went to Texas. Hmm. So, you know, the Nellie got distributed across the United States in a pretty grand fa- fashion for, you know, for that day, uh, you know, uh, a bloodline would be remain very local for many generations, you know, uh, and Nellie got, you know, kind of splattered across the United States um, in that respect. Now, um, and, and because of that, she actually ended up coming out with, I guess, as, as far as the highest ranked mother, she was, she was at the highest, right? Yeah, she was. It, it, we did a, a survey of all of the national, the dogs who had been contestants at the national championship. Okay. And we researched their sire line and their, you know, father, father, son line and their, their dams line on a mother daughter basis. And, uh, you know, counted up, I think, uh, Nelly, you might have it in front of you. Yep. Nelly. So Nelly was, she had 21 days. Close to 30%. Yeah, uh, 21 dams who had 25 titles of national champions. Um, 20% of the dams in that survey came from Nelly. Okay, uh, um, I'm sitting here looking at it. Uh, there were 218 dams that went back to Nelly, mm-hmm. and those 218 produced 263 of the 1,119 total contestants. Good Lord. Man. You know, so a, a really large percentage of all the national championship contestants went back to that dog, Ellie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in the Hawkwalk books, uh, Hawkwalk would make the distinction of what he called natives. Mm-hmm. In other words, the dogs that were already here in the United States prior to the import of the prices bang dogs. Okay. And so Nelly, Nelly would be considered one of the natives. Right. Um, so, so when they brought over prices bang offspring, so the, the males, they, mm-hmm. they were bred to and, and females too. Okay. So, so we're talking about both. When you say the prices bang, we're talking about both. All right. So okay. they ended up getting bred to one, two, three, four, about five. The, there was like a main five. So, well, the, yeah, as far I mean, as the natives, they got bred to a, a whole bunch of different females. But bringing those lines forward to the to today, mm-hmm. we find that there's just four or five that really make a difference. Right. I can't remember. I think I want to say the total number of of possible female origin dogs were like around 170. But when you look at the top, you know, five of those, they make up like 85% of all the national championship contestants belong to just five of those females. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, so um, it's, there were a whole bunch in the beginning, but only, you know, five or so that really counts. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um and, you know, Nellie was one of the ones that would have been considered a native, uh, so to speak. 
another one of the native uh, origin dogs would be a dog named Lily, mm-hmm. um, who uh, belonged to a Mr. Orgill, O-R-G-I-L-L. Um, and he was a big participant in the St. Louis Kennel Club. Um, and his dogs, uh, particularly from, well, his dog from Lily was a dog named Rush that was a very big dog show champion and, and traveled throughout the United States in, in winning dog shows in, in many different localities and such. And, and Rush had two sisters, uh, Beulah and Climat. And um, from Beulah and Climat, we get the two big branches of the Lily family um, of females. Uh, you know, and so that would be one of the ones that's considered a native. Another native would be uh, a, a bitch named Rose, mm-hmm. who uh, has a three-generation pedigree of American dogs um, and was purchased by the Westminster Kennel Club to breed to uh, Sensation. And Sensation was one of the very first Price's Bang dogs brought over to the U.S. Um, Mm. Sensation to this day is still the logo dog of the Westminster Kennel Club. Yep. If you look at their logo, it's a, it's the head of a pointer, and that that's the pointer sensation. And the the and funny and thing sensation about never really became that much that great of a of a sire, but um, right. they said, his, I mean, he looked his good. But of, he... With Rose established a dynasty of Rose females, right? Um, which you know leads up to like today's dog uh, Hannah Zell, Hannah Zell Hulu and what would be her great, great granddaughter sparkles, mm-hmm. you know, would, would go back mother daughter to Rose. Okay. Uh, um, such so you know, you said I, other dogs were imported. Uh, one of the more imported, more important imported females was a female named Pearlstone. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually, uh, she was brought over, and she was actually the from the mating of a brother sister offspring of Price's Bang. So okay. she was she, she was, was super she, close. She was, you know, or inbred, let's say, because it was uh, perhaps littermate brother and sister, or perhaps. Half brother and sister. Uh, we're really not sure because mm-hmm. there's a bunch of different dogs named Bang, uh, but there's only one Mr. Lloyd Hebe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Bang plus Lloyd Hebe gives us Pearlstone. You know, so it's either a half brother sister mating or it's a littermate brother or sister mating that produced Pearlstone. Um, and then Pearlstone was the mother of uh, Pearl's dot and, and dots. And then uh, Pearl Stott was the mother of Dots Pearl. And in that very earliest days of field trials, um, they were two of the record-producing bitches um, of their day. 
and remains so up until like you know the 1930s or so when some of the uh, Lady Ferris dogs, you know, uh, put up bigger numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, Lady Ferris herself was from a line of imported dogs that goes back to a bitch named Jasmine, who was imported by the St. Louis Kennel Club too. Right. Um, and you said that Jasmine, the funny thing about it, I will always remember this, but you told me that Jasmine was Hotch Waltz only. Yeah, it's the only really mistake that I find, I've ever found in the Hawk Walt phone book books. Um, is that he spelled her name Jessamine, J E S S A M I N E, where the other pedigrees in St. Louis Kennel Club records and stuff, dog show records have her as Jasmine, J-A-S-M-I-N-E. Mm-hmm. And Jessamine was actually a, a, a setter bitch that was owned by the St. Louis Kennel Club. So you can kind of forgive that mistake, but it's one of the only mistakes of, of Hawkwolf that I've ever found, um, you know, where he would misspell the name. Right. He's, he's pretty remarkably accurate and stuff. It's, it, it's frustrating that some of the dogs that ended up being very important to our story, uh, like Jasmine, he gives us very little information on other Mm -hmm. than like maybe the year that they imported her or something like that, you know? Well, and, and so that goes back to, you know, when we talk about the discrepancies and stuff like that, you know, a lot of dogs were listed like that. Um, you know, names might have been similar. What, how many, you know, ladies and queens did you find in the research? Oh, there's there's just a whole bunch of queens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easier to tell that certain queens are not the same dog than it is to tell that certain queens are the same dog. Mm. Okay. You know, but even but just the sheer number of dogs named Queen leaves like half of them uncertain which Queen it really was. Mm-hmm. Um, when you don't have an owner's name or somebody listed as the breeder of a litter of Queen as a dam or something, you know, it, it just leaves. It just leaves, you know, another anonymous queen on the list. Right, right. Um, now, dogs, and, they, and they gradually dogs, got more specific. But and dogs named Lady are are kind of the same way. There's right. a lot of ladies, right, uh, and such. You know, so hey guys, if you want to like, you know, have your dog live in infamy, late name them Queen or Lady. <laughs> <laughs> Queen lady, uh, was it now most, most of the time folks name their dogs after guns. Uh, I was notorious for that with my lab. Um, <laughs> Bell is, Bell is another one of those girls names that there's a lot of bells. So hold on. Queen, now Queen, you, Bell and lady. Were, now you said you were going to get another bell and we have to tell this story lady, but are you, I mean, later, not lady, but we got to tell this story lady about the dog that you want to potentially name bell. But are you? Yeah. Are, is that something that bothers you as a historian? Like, <laughs> no, I um, I own a, a piece of property in a in a little small town out in South Texas, um, and it's the very corner of town, and off of my property is a big 
like 80,000 acre ranch and uh, the drainage from the ditch in front of my property runs out into that ranch land to a place that they call the froggy bottom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I joke around saying that you know, if I ever have a kennel name, um, it's going to be froggy bottom. And one of the first uh, dogs that I breed are going to be named froggy bottom bell and froggy bottom buckaroo. <laughs> Uh, that still cracks me up man but we'll you know we'll see um back to some of the other imported dogs uh you know a lot was made about hops Uh in in the early books um uh blumo Mm -hmm. was also blumo uh, was a funky one though man uh how how so would you say funky well, fun- funky is in, as in like she wasn't when I read about Blumo and, and, and some of the stuff that I've I've pulled out of the between your articles and history books. Blumo wasn't the most visually appealing dog. Hops wasn't the hops was a terribly marked spotted dog. No, um, Blumo's at like the, her disposition is what I'm saying. Like it uh, was it was listed that Blumo yeah, just it, didn't look uh, that good on point. Uh, um, Blumo herself was terrible, almost useless as in the field as a hunting dog. Okay. Um, uh, and yet her daughter was one of the earliest, uh, this, this bitch named Lassa Blumo was one of the very earliest field trial winners. And, and we know a lot of the history of Blumo from, from the field trial records of her daughter. Okay. Bluma herself was supposedly, you know, worthless in the field. Yeah. Um, now, Hops, uh, uh, the dog that Edward Dexter brought over with Mainspring, and you know the was the uh, Hops was the dam of riprap. Mm-hmm. Hops was was terribly marked. You know, had what we what they would have would have considered at that time very poor confirmation because she was a very small dog and and was just terribly you know uh, tick spotted throughout her body and such um, and yet she was able to pass on that smaller size to rip wrap and mm-hmm. that's one of the things that made riprap so important that he was a, a smaller swifter dog of of his day and and you know of of the dogs the field trial pointers in america living today all of them go back father son to riprap yeah okay. you know all the other uh jingo line and and early other early lines like that have gone extinct you know everything living today goes back to riprap yeah and Rip Rap supposedly had a heck of a, I mean, not supposedly, he did have a heck of a nose. Um, one cool story that I ended up reading about Rip Rap was, you know, they say that, you know, if, if he caught sin onto something, I mean, he just kind of froze in whatever funky odd position he was in, you know. Um, and that was just kind of, he was really, really small and he had a bomb of a nose. You know. And, and, and he was... In his day, one of the very first pointers 
to really take on the setters in the field cross. Yeah. I mean, he was considered the equal of, of most of the setters that were being run at that day. You know, and before that, you know, to some extent, a lot of the pointers would be run in separate field trials, you know, so they wouldn't be considered equals to setters mm-hmm. and such. And it was Edward Dexter who really promoted the idea that, you know, pointers and setters should run in the same field trials together. That, you know, the, you know, the, the idea of it being open all age meant to open to all the purebred dogs, you know, uh, and you know, probably in the earliest time, that wasn't necessarily purebred. It was open to all dogs, right. and not breed specific, and not be a trial for setters or for pointers or such. Right, and and so, and now we talk about and, we talk about purebreds. That there came and, a modification to that too. But go ahead. I was going to say, and we owe a lot to Edward Dexter and and his kennelman captain McMurdo and such in the development of pointers because they are very instrumental in taking that uh, smaller version of Price's Bang Dogs and really putting them in front of the public and saying, you know, hey, look, guys, this is the future. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, you know, People caught on to that idea and 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 really really ran with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we skip a few generations from. Uh, let me see. I can count them up real quick. From Price's Bang to Fischl's Frank is one, two, three, four, five, six generations um at the time of fish also in that sixth generation official strength you also find two other really important dogs um alfred's john and hard catch and there's this picture of a dog show dog lineup that shows official strength and some of his offspring in a lineup that also has Alfred's John and hard cash in the same picture. And do you have, do you have we'll, that picture? Yeah, we'll, well, you've got it too. It's in one of those Hawkwalk books. We'll get it up on your website or something. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but it shows Alfred's John and hard cash side by side with Fischl Frank, And they are like half of his size. Mm-hmm. They yeah. are considerably smaller than Fischl Frank, And the influence of the of the success of hard cash and Alfred Stone and field trials and their influence in, in the breeding of, of point further pointer generations, you know, is what really put that smaller, swifter, faster element into what is what was the future pointers. Right. Uh, it, you know, they uh, that that particular generation dogs was really quite the, the real turning point for American pointers. Um, and people really often under, underestimate hard cash. Um, why now? Why is that? Why do you say and, that? And, and, and well, he's just, uh, 
he appears in so many of those early dogs' pedigrees, um, much much more so than Alfred's John, but um, people always look at Alfred's John as being that smaller, I mean, and Hawkwalk wrote about Alfred's John being that smaller dog that made the turning point and stuff, um, but very little uh, words have been put in print about, you know, how important hard cash was okay. in, in, in making that change. But he, he was. He was very important. And we should also say that Hard Cash's mother, uh, Brown's Bella Pointer, um, is pretty near being a matriarch herself. Um, I'm going to sit here and... Uh, I'm gonna find it's in the modern pointer while you're doing I'm seeing, that. I'm gonna I'm find here that, looking, uh, at a, looking at a spreadsheet. To, um, Brown's Bella Pointer is from the Nelly family. Okay, but she's but she's from a branch of the Nelly family that goes back to a bitch named Dot, where most of the Nelly family goes back to either a bitch named Topsy or. Um, uh, 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 mall. Um, there's there's four branches of the Nelly family, uh, and um, one branch basically goes back to this Brown's Bella Pointer, who was the dam of hard cash. Okay, so and that that's. Probably also where you're getting hard cash being that smaller, swifter dog. Um, you know, coming from his from his mother's side. Okay. Uh, his his sire was young Jingo, um, and young Jingo was uh, um, from Jingo. And Pearl Stott, Pearl Stott being that daughter of the imported bitch Pearlstone um, that we talked about being so closely bred to Price's Bang. Right. Uh, you know, so that would have been the first generation out of dogs being very closely bred to Price's Bang being thrown up against a Nelly uh, uh, lineage bitch. And you come up with a dog named like Hard Cash, right. which you know was a, really a game changer gotcha. in, in, in the in the lineage, the breeding, the lineage of it all. Now, um, it's it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I, I'm I, I'm about done with Jack Harper's book, you know, and Jack Harper and all of those guys, Ed Mack, all of those guys. Just to skip forward a little bit, um, he mentioned Hard Cash. You know, as mm-hmm. one of the dogs that really, really, really influenced the game back then. So I think it's a matter it's a matter of time, a timing where I guess in, in, in more modern books, if you don't really look for it, you're not going to see hard cash. But I know that was definitely for those guys in the early, you know, early 10s, 20s, 30s and 40s and stuff like that. That dog would have made more of a. 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 a I guess an impact on the guys that were actually running, you know, running in the field. 
Is it so? It's funny that you said it. And last night, I just came across Hard Cash's name. Well, also, um, Hard Cash had a son named Rags Royal Popper, mm-hmm. uh, who gives us the James Ben Hur, the sire of Mary, national champion Mary Blue. Right. For such. And so, you know, that. Uh, little batch of, you know, branch of sire line was around for, um, you know, another six or eight generations making that influence. It it wasn't just hard cash by himself. It was, you know, off at his offspring as his offspring spread out across America. Um, uh, but you know, you can you can put your finger on. Hard cash is being, you know, the, you know, in, influential, you know, member of that, uh, that clan, you know. Right. Okay. Okay. So, you know, when we, when we talk about that, cause we, 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 you know, we're on the males, let's get, let's go back to the, the, the mitochondrial inheritance part. Cause I think we missed one piece if you don't mind. Um, and and you wrote two really good articles and they were so detailed but in the survey of national champions now you mentioned that there was always a, a a huge emphasis placed on the stud dog right like this whole time we've been talking about males but you know as in the y chromosomes getting passed down directly from father to son now that was always you know something that people relied on but what about the game of chance that people thought they were playing, um, you know, with the X, the, the, the X chromosomes? Like, you know, how did that how did we get to finding out that the mother daughter line actually, you know, was less variable? Um, and I think that was okay. more of a modern thing, too. Yeah, that's that's. You know, the um, discovery of the sex link chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes and such, came around right around 1900. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it took quite a bit of speculation to do X factor, X chromosome genetics. You know, you have... When a male dog is born, it gets a Y chromosome from his father and an X chromosome from the mother. Uh, a female pup, on the other hand, would get its father's X chromosome and one of its mother's X chromosomes. Mm-hmm. So each female has two X chromosomes, and each time a, a mother produces a pup, that pup gets one of the mother's two X chromosomes. And and that, you know, technically should be equally distributed amongst all of the litter mates that pup has. So, you know, roughly half of the litter will get X chromosome A and the other half of the litter will get X chromosome B. 
um, it makes it very difficult to try to follow any of that back through generations and in, in what they called X factor genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, until the age of actually being able to DNA test the dogs, you know, there wasn't any certainty to any of that. Um, it was something that was quite confounded to, uh, for example, racehorse breeders and, you know, breeders of other animals too. It wasn't just, you know, looked at by dog people. In fact, you know, the racehorse people probably did a much more detailed look at that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, and so for such a long time, the dominant thing, the sure bet was, you know, which stud dog was being used. And, you know, a great deal of effort was put into identifying, you know, which was the prepotent sire right. uh, at, at the time. Okay. So this is my thing. Do you think that the mother-daughter lines you know, play more of a factor in producing, you know, the champions that we have now, you know, because there, there's, that's something that you've kind of stressed to me is, is the, the, well, the mother daughter line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the mother daughter line actually offers the variability in genetics. If you consider that all of the father son lines that we have now go back to riprap. They're basically passing on the same Y chromosome, mm-hmm. regardless of which stud dog it, it is passing that on, and, and the vari- variability of that dog's makeup comes from his mother, or is passed on by the dam that you choose to breed to him. Um, the, you know the. The confirmation, the makeup, the physical, you know, confirmation makeup of the dog is always going to be some mixture of the mother and father's uh, uh, influences equally, and you know, the rest of the pedigrees, uh, you know, that that inner part of the pedigree, uh, you know, factors in, into that con- kind of confirmation look. But, you know, for a, a number of particular factors are found to be particularly passed on by the father or by the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the idea that uh, mitochondrial DNA uh, is the variable, variable that produces things like strength and stamina and such is very important in any breeding consideration. Um, you know, and that's an exclusive mother daughter line territory. Okay. You know, and so in the more recent years, it's become more important to look at those mother daughter lines and the families that those mother daughters come from. Okay. Um, uh, you know, and, and while I've, in that article, 
and I'm just going to say that the those articles were in the Christmas issues of the American Field in 2014 and 2015. Okay. Uh, the 2014 issue was the father son issue, and the 2015 Christmas issue was the mother daughter. Right. Article and um, and they were very thorough. I would like to be able to offer, you know, I guess email it to anybody that might be interested if that's all right. I mean, I got, I know I have a buddy of mine, Paul, that might, you know, enjoy reading it if he hadn't already read it because he's been a member of American Field for a long time. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I have no problem with that. Just, you know, be sure to give credit to the American Field as it, it's passed around because right. it is. It is their their turf, right? Um, but uh, going back to what I was going to say about those articles is that you know we ranked, we looked at a sample of dogs that were the dogs that were contestants at the national championship because we looked at that sample group because one, it gave us a long continuous history of dogs to look at. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it goes back to eighteen ninety four. To the present, you know, so we're looking at, you know, we're a, a sample of dogs that's representative of a long period of time. And it's also representative of a higher class of dogs and that the dogs have to ha- actually qualify to run as contestants at the national championship. It, 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 you know, we're looking at a batch of top-notch dogs. Right. We're looking at the best but, of the best that. If and we're it being, also, yeah. we're, and we're also looking at in the father son lines the dogs that were the most important sires in history. Right. You know. Um, well, and that's happened, so all happened to coincide with being contestant uh, at the national championship. There were very few uh, important sires uh, that were not national championship contestants. Um, but most of the time they were the sire of a national championship contestant. And so it ended up getting included in that survey. Right. Um, you know, so it, it pretty much captured all the most important stud dogs. Right. Uh, at the time, uh, the female article, the distaff side of the article, um, uh, captured who were the most important, uh, female matriarchs, you know, which of these female lines accounted for, for the largest percentages of those national championship contestants mm-hmm. and such. Um, uh, but the one whole in all of this is in, and using this as a, you know, a real statistical survey is that it is nevertheless an awfully small, uh, percentage of the population of at on on the whole if you you look at there's you know we're currently at 1.6 million something field dog stud book numbers mm-hmm. you know figure that roughly half of those were uh pointers you know so we're making a survey of um some 1100 and change pointers out of a potential um 80,000 I mean, 800,000, you know, uh, pointers in history, you know, so it's a, it's a real small sample of the population and it doesn't really give you an idea of 
how those family, those female families are spread out amongst the population of the whole. It's only you know, how they're spread out amongst these high performance dogs. Right. Um, you know, you might find that, you know, at, at, when you look at any uh, field dog stud book registration publication, you know, today, um, and the old ones that, that were published back in the book form, you, you, you quickly notice that the field trial dogs make up only a small portion of the dogs that get registered. Mm-hmm. That's true. And it, and it might be that one of these families that, uh, we don't consider highly ranked in the field trial world might be much more important to the hunting dog world and have a a larger percentage of the population as a whole than, than what some of these field trial female families have. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it would be ridiculously tedious to, uh, you know, do that for 8,000 dogs or more. You know, um, you look at the fact that we did it for uh, 1,119 pointers and uh, the total number was 1,390 or just shy of 1,400 dogs, um, you know, pointers and setters combined. And that took us about like seven years. Right. You know, um, so... You know, I don't think I would live long enough to actually get enough random dogs sampled to ever know the the actual percentage of the populations that that these you know female families make up. Right. You, you just have to, have to make the assumption that um, you know it would be roughly representative of uh you know the that this small sample would be roughly representative of the population as a whole mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well and and I think you 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 did it right so I got interested in some of your work because I thought it was very um I thought it was cool that you started with Lester's Sunny Hill Joe and basically worked backwards. You know, you you, well, you you were finding family trees and then and, and worked that, yourself backwards. That piece that I sent you something I wrote looking at Lester Sunny Hill Joe and looking backwards, Lester Sunny Hill Joe was picked in particular because he represented the combination of the two oldest uh um I, the two oldest lines that I could go to, I wanted to be able to go back to Lang's Frank on the father-son side. I wanted to be able to go back to Nellie on the mother-daughter side because that's absolutely as far back as I can go, you you know, in those names. And so, you know, looking at the survey of of dogs, which is the most recent, most familiar name would be double champion double national champion Lester Sunny Hill Joe had that that 
combination of lineage. Mm-hmm. You could look at, you know, uh, an older dog, like say, um, uh, Whippoorwill Wildcard, mm-hmm. uh, Lester Snow Watch, uh, um, you know, or go back, go back even further to like a dog like Ariel or Luminary mm-hmm. or um, still further back, you know, uh, National Champion Rapid Transit or Manitoba Rap. Right. Um, all shared that same combination of, you know, the Nelly bloodline, uh, you know, with the Rip Rap dogs. Right. Okay. Uh, it, it's just that uh, Sunny Hill Joe was, you know, you know, picking the most present dog, you know, present dog, a living dog, gives me the greatest number of generations, mm-hmm. you know, going backwards. If I had started with, for example, you know, Whippoorwill Wildcard going back, you know, I, I, would, I wouldn't have had as many generations in that article. Right. Right. Now, I, I, I want to talk about Blue Hens, but also, you know, we missed Trinket. We didn't cover her. Okay, yeah. Trinket was um, another one of the imported bitches. Uh, and she, yes, she is is quite Im- important. She ranks uh, as either the second or third, third place uh, family. Um, let's see. Trinket was... Uh, one of the Pilkington dogs uh, imported from England. Um, This guy, Thomas Pilkington, um, uh, lived at a place called Sandside House in Caton, Scotland. He was uh, uh, a millionaire businessman making glass. Oh, okay. The Victorian age, you know, in the great glass houses and, and everything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. He made he made his millions as, in the glass business and had a country estate called Sandside House in Caithness, Scotland, where he had a kennel of, of pointer dogs. And uh, his primary stud dog of the day was a dog named Pilkington's Tory. And Trinket was uh, a daughter of his line okay. um, she wasn't related to the the prices bang line stuff when she was imported and she was imported prior to the prices bang dogs being brought over shortly before they they were brought over and she bred to some of the earliest ones i'm trying to think of uh which one it was right now if, if i found distant i'm looking for a different piece of paper here. And I'm not finding it. So <laughs> we'll we'll I'll we'll pull it up. It'll it'll come up. Not a big deal. Um, but I just I didn't wanna I did not want to miss her. Um you know I was kinda thinking about it. I was like, wait a minute, you know. Um she would she was bred to bang bang. Okay. Uh, who was a son of Price's Bang mm-hmm. and uh, one of the earliest imports. And she was also bred to Croxith. And Croxith is uh, 
probably one of the more uh, important of the earliest Price's Bang dogs. He was a grandson of Price's Bang. Okay. Um, a brother of the dog named Priam, who was the sire of King of Kent. Um, Croxit and Trinket produced a dog named Trinket's Bang and Trinket's Coin. Trinket's Bang bred to the imported bitch Pearlstone and produced the famous bitch Pearlstock. Okay. Um, you know, so it's all all that combination of of Price's Bang Dog stuff there. But Trinket herself was a Pilkington dog, um, and you know wasn't and, and came just on the cusp of of the Price's Bang Dogs coming to America um, at that at that time. Right. So there's, I mean, there's just a lot going on in a very, very, very short amount of time as far as the evolution of the pointer. I mean, what are we talking about? Span of at most 50 years when all of these changes and breedings or stuff are starting to happen? Well, from, you know, consider from 1844 at the Thomas Edge Kennel Auction mm-hmm. to 1880s when the prices bang dogs were brought over is roughly 35 years. And from the 1880s to what was the age of not official strength, like 1915 19, or something early teens. Yeah. You know, so, you know, that's another 35 years that you've, you know, reached, you, you've made that jump from hundred pound dogs to dogs like, Hard Cash and Alfred's John, which might have been in the 40-pound range. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a reduction in size and, and, you know, in half. Right. Um, over that period of time. Right. Uh, and, you know, the majority of that reduction in size happened in that last 35 years in America and such. And it wasn't completely thorough for a number of generations after hard cash and Alfred's John. Um, but by the time you got to like dogs, like, you know, for example, muscle souls, Jake, um, it was pretty well established and, you know, muscle souls, Jake himself was the sire of a few champion dogs. Um, uh, Spunky Creek Amazon comes to mind. Um, but it was really, his grandsons and such as they spread out over the United States that established the different families of dogs that we recognize today. Like, for example, Lexington Jake mm-hmm. uh, up in the Northeast or that, and that's, um, that's Whaley stuff, you know, that's that direction. And, and, and not just Whaley, it's Lexington Jake is also, the predecessor of Riggins White Knight and all the the white dogs, uh, Carol Miller and you know the the company men. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you've got going to the East Coast, uh, a dog named Bobbit Stylish Jake, who was a grandson of Muscle Souls Jake. He was the sire of Fast Delivery, mm-hmm. and uh, from Fast Delivery, you get. 
his sons, Newman's Delivery Dan, mm-hmm. who was the sire of um, Rambling Rebel Dan and what we call Rebel Dogs today. Right. And the other important son of fast delivery was the Haberdasher. And the Haberdasher's line uh, lives on today in, for example, a dog named Sugar Knoll Buckshot. Um, if he if he's still alive, I'm, I think he might have passed on, but I'm sure he has sons and daughters out there living today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, you know, you look at those two lines as being the rebel line and the delivery lines of dogs, and you've got Lexington Jake's dogs, um, you know, uh, the addition of go-boy dogs yep. come down from uh, C.V. Rex, who was another important instrumental dog at, at approximately the same time as, as Muscle Souls Jake and C.V. Rex's offspring were distributed out across the U.S. in the way of Muscle Souls Jake's offspring. Or, um, you know, and, by, and so by the time the generations of CV Rex dogs meeting up with Muscle Souls Jake's dogs, that you know, transformation is pretty much complete. Right. You know. Right. Now, you know. And I'll also I'll also say one thing about CV Rex is he is perhaps the earliest dog that people really talked about him having such uh, what we call twelve o'clock, but back then they called a flagpole tail. Right, and that was in the third. Was that the thirties? You know, and, and and that's you know one of the influences of CV Rex was that tail right and that type of style so i would say that could cv rest correct me if i'm wrong that was 1930 what yeah i've looked at my spreadsheet here and i have to put my pass code into it again because <laughs> no i and and i hate uh, to, to have you do all that i think that's no, just a, a, a pivotal point Stevie for pointers rex first ran at the national in 1925 and then Muscle Shoals Jake comes along a little bit later than that, I think. Let me see if I can find him. Muscle Shoals Jake first ran in 1923. But he ran for a considerable more years. He ran uh, five he years old. total. Uh, yeah, he he was... ran five times over six years. Okay. But CV Rex, the sales of Muscle Shoals Jake are some of the fascinating things, a little pieces of trivia in that you find in the Field Dog Stud book. What you mean? Muscle Shoals Jake was sold as a puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, evidently there was some sort of lawsuit or something in order for him to for the breeder to get him back. Hmm. Because there's this weird batch of transfers of ownerships in which the person who bought him as a puppy transfers him to a bank and the bank transfers him to a law office 
and the law office transfers him back to the original owner. And then the original owner placed him uh, with a handler, and at the very first or second derby that he ran at, he ran at a derby in Texas, and James Foster was at that derby with a blank check and handed it over to say, I'm buying Muscle Souls, Jake, fill in this check. Oh, wow. And James Foster would be his champion, you know, as far as uh, campaigning him throughout the rest of his life. And at the same time, James Foster would sell half interests or quarter interests in ownership of Muscle Souls, Jake, to a whole slew of different other people who you can only imagine that they were buying an interest in Muscle Shoals Jake in order to get breeding rights or something. Right. And such. But at the, at the end of his life, he, he, uh, he ended up, he remained in, you know, partial ownership to James Foster and he died at his handler's kennel in Oklahoma uh, and is buried there in outside of Benita, Oklahoma um, and such. But, you know, if, if you ever see a change hands, more often uh, than Muscle Souls Jake, it, it, w- it would truly amaze me. He, you know, he, uh, there was probably as many as, you know, a dozen different title transfers for Muscle Souls Jake in his lifetime. Huh. And such. That's interesting. Uh, okay. J- James, Foster, James Foster would go on to write a brag book about Muscle Souls Jake. And dog breeding in general. It's called 20th Century Dog Breeding by James C. Foster Jr. Uh, and it has a section in the back of it called The American Pointer in This Family Tree. Um, and while the the breeding portion of the book is, you know, somewhat archaic, he talks about things like a dog's germplasm and such. Um, you know, rather than talking about a dog's DNA, um, it's amazing how much Foster got right in his in his day. Uh, and you know, saying that such and such theories of breeding is bunk, and this is the way to to look at inheritance and prepotency and things like that. Um, he uh, he was one of the first people to you know, put the poo-poo on Galton's Law of Inheritance into print. Okay. Uh, You know, and and such like that. He he was really ahead of his time in in the the science of of breeding. All right. Back to the Gundog Notebook podcast. Um, We had quite a bit of a a game changer right now. So I'm on the phone with Steeple Bell and Craig Koshik. Two gentlemen that have filled me in uh lord i don't know how much y'all have told me a lot i mean craig we speak you know through facebook and you send me you know all kinds of information um you know i got also, you i want to talk about onyx hunt there's a lot of new features coming down the pipeline that i keep hearing about and getting rumors and um of course i will talk about them as they come to me but most importantly guys on X hunt is going to be your number one source for, for digital mapping. And 
I can't tell you how excited I am to go back to my places from last year and, and really you know log those make sure they're birds find new places this season so make sure that you you know subscribe download the onyx hunt um, and also use my promo code as i always say gdn20 get yourself 20 percent off at checkout as you become a new subscriber okay so we <laughs> we're picking back up steeple um with i guess the the part two if you want to call it that um if that's what we're going if we're going to call it that we were interrupted by a thunderstorm and it knocked out everything uh every, all the power in the house <laughs> so we uh so we, we picked up off muscle a couple shows weeks yet. later mm-hmm. it is <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and a couple of weeks ago when we got interrupted, we were right at, um, muscle shows, Jake and James Foster and, and all those details. Yeah. We were talking about James Foster's book. Um, and he really started, uh, two different ways of tracking these dogs. He, um, had tables for the sires and dams that had times place, the number of winners sired and the total wins of progeny, which is the wins numbers that you get on a American field pedigree. Um, now, uh, and Foster started that stuff. Okay. And that is, that's um, the, uh, for those that don't it, know, it's the, number dash number dash number it, it looks like it's a one or two digit or maybe even three digit number dash for, yeah for example muscle shoals jake was the leading sire at the time he wrote the book and his numbers were 1794 287 which means that he placed 17 times in field trials himself he had 94 offspring won a placement at a field trial and those 94 offspring had a total of 287 placements right and we have used that wins numbers uh measurement ever since at the time he wrote his book the table for top sires had 18, 7, um, had 25 dogs on it that had sired more than 20 winners. Good Lord. Okay. That's how small the family tree of dogs were, of, you know, top producing dogs were at that time. And then, um, I mean, and, and that's family tree. I mean, that's pretty much where everybody was going to like, I mean, because it was so small, you there was no way to. I, I guess, it, I guess it was. What I'm trying to ask is, was it easier then to breed off of, you know, champions and kind of specify what you were looking for in a breeding because it's, the pool was so small. Well, yes and no. The in the field trial world, it was. If you had a, a female in the heat, you could meet up with a field trial dog when he came to your 
local field trial if that field trial happened to be when your dog was in heat. Otherwise, you would ship a dog to that dog's home kennel and it would stay there in those kennels until it came in heat again to be bred. Wow. So they were you know, doing so it you might at be without trial. your dog for six months or a year, you know, before it came back to you. Um wow. the, the the table of of top sires at that time, I'm just gonna read off the first seven or eight or um it went Muscle Shoals Jake was number one, Seaview Rex was number two, Tip of Joy Use was number three, Carolina Frank four, Comanche Frank five, Fischl's Frank six, and John Proctor seven. Um, Egyptian Shot eight, Dunes Jack Frost nine, and Milligan's Dan was 10. Ferris Manitoba Rap was 11. And that 11 dogs pretty made, pretty much made up the branches of the family tree of dogs at that time. Um, okay. The, the top, of course, seven or eight are all direct descendants of each other. Um, so if you look at Foster's family tree, you have Fischl's Frank and his two sons, John Proctor and Comanche Frank. Mm -hmm. um, Comanche Frank has three sons listed, Milligan's Dan, Comanche Zigfield, and Carolina Frank. Only Carolina Frank out of those three bred on to, you know, more modern days. Mm -hmm. um, under John Proctor... He has Tar Heel John and his son, Seaview Rex. And Seaview Rex has Village Boy underneath him as a, a potential sire of the future. Then he has uh, Champion Ferris Jake and Muscle Shoals Jake. And he lists four sons of Muscle Shoals Jake. The Hottentot. Bacon Rhine, Newsboy, and Air Pilot. And two of those we and talked only the one other of day. Those, only one of those made it to today would be the line from Air Pilot. Right. Now, um, you, you, you mentioned the, that two of those, Bacon Rhine and Newsboy, were kind of the, the latter, lesser known of, of those dogs. Um, they were remarkable winners of their day. They didn't live long. Mm -hmm. Um, the Hottentot, uh, was a remarkable winner of his day. And he was the sire of like national champion rapid transit and national champion Sulu and others, but he belonged to AGC Sage and he was never put out as a stud to the public. Right. Um, he just being in private ownership. So his, his line never went very far other than what AGC Sage had in his kennel. Gotcha. Um, but what, what's missing is uh, 
Lexington Village boy going to Lexington Jake's mm-hmm. uh, line of dogs and Jake's rigor wrap going to fast delivery and the dogs we call rebels now, um, you know, weren't on Mr. Foster's radar at the time. Okay. And he also didn't pay any attention to Manitoba rap and the descendants of Manitoba rap, which led to evolution, for example, being a more recent dog from that line. Now, why, why wouldn't he have paid? Cause I mean, I feel like that's almost hypocritical in a way, like to not pay attention to Manitoba rap when he had done so many good things. I mean, he was, he was the first, but he wasn't, a terribly remarkable sire. Okay, so it was I'm just. To see if he's even on the. Uh, he was the sire of thirty-six winners. Um, which is like one third of what Muscle Shoals Jake was in his in that day. Right. He so, he wasn't. He wasn't a really highly ranked sire. So man's um, rep's performance ranks, was off the he chain. He just didn't just, pass it up. He ranks just above Doughboy, and Doughboy wasn't considered that great of a sire in his day. Okay. So, um, again, just going back to that, it I mean, their performances were undeniable, but in addition to that, they had to produce, which man, obviously yeah. Manitoba Rap just wasn't, wasn't doing it. Yeah, when you look at these family trees of dogs, there are tons and tons of little branches arms off of a top sire where a really big time winner has just one or two generations underneath him mm-hmm. and then that petered out he just ne- that never produced the way that one of his brothers might have okay for example tip of joy use only had one field trial placement in his lifetime. Um, but he was a brother of, uh, what was it, John Proctor? Or he was a brother of Ferris Jake? He was a brother of Ferris Jake. Any, any, uh, and, and so they used him very successfully as a stud dog. So now tell me this, though. I mean, what what was the standard that they were going off of if he didn't win that much, but yet they used him as a stud dog? What was you know what was what was the point with Muscle Shoals Jake? He he produced a lot, but he was also a hell of a winner. Well, some of that was the idea that if you wanted that bloodline the champion might be half a continent away, but his brother is right there in Georgia right? where a lot of dogs are being produced, you know, so let's give the brother a try and he produces a few winners and then they bring some more girls to him and he produces a few more winners and, and establishes himself. Man. Uh, you know, a lot of it was just the difficulty of getting dogs across the country in order to be bred. So you just took what was available in a sense. Right. 
the other thing that uh, you know, Foster did this wins numbers and he did this family tree and and those have been continued on into the future into the future. Um, there was a guy who was a mechanical engineer, a professor of mechanical engineering or something mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. And his name was Vesper Willoughby. And back in the day before they had uh, any computers or, you know, tabulators or whatever, he put out these books called The Cream of Pointerdom and The Cream of Setterdom, in which he calculated the wins numbers for every dog that had had a placement in a field trial up until that date. And that was 1946 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was his work, and he and he would put out yearly updates in the field. Um, his work carried that wins numbers into the American field doing it at that that point of time when when he stopped, they they picked up right. And, and they still do that today. And and he's kind of a ghost. Nobody really remembers his name anymore. But what he it's, it's truly amazing what he did in order to calculate all of that. And he not only calculated the wins numbers, but he he broke it down into Categories of the number of mates the the dog had in order to produce those, and then he would break down the wins of the progeny into shooting dog, amateur derby, amateur all age, open derby, open all age, or championships. And then he would tell you how many mates of that dog had winners in each of those categories. How long did that take him? Any such. I can't imagine. Good. I can't Lord imagine. Lord, man. You know, just making little file cards for every single field trial results and then alphabetizing all the dogs. Because when, when you showed it to me, man, it's, it literally looks, it's just a bunch of, it's just a very long Excel spreadsheet. Like, that's what it looks like. You know, um, well, it's a spreadsheet that's nearly 400 pages, right? (laughs) You know, it's, um, and it has what about 40 or 50 dogs per page. Man, okay. Now, is it is there any insight into you know into his process? Is obviously he didn't go to all of these trials, so I mean, no, he it, it. at that point in time, the American field published the field dog stud book in a book form each year. Okay. And in the back of each book, it would give you the results of all the field trials that happened that previous year. So he was just, so he, was able, he was able to take the set of books and they stopped publishing them in 1947, which was about the time that he stopped doing these calculations 
but he was able to take the results from the field dog stud books and just put it into file cards and sort them, you know, uh, to come up with that. <laughs> uh, now the, the family tree part that Foster started was carried on by a number of different people. Um, O.C. Keller wrote a number of articles in the field, a lot of times in the Christmas issues, that would have leading pointer sires. And it would take all the entrants in one of the big trials that year and sort out how many came from each branch of the family trees that Foster had, had started. Okay. And then John Criswell did a little bit of that too. Now I want to, I want to talk about John Criswell a bit more. Most recently it got updated by a survey of all the national championship contestants. That was yours. That I did with some friends of mine. Um, I'm not that computer savvy. If a good friend of mine set up all the spreadsheet and calculations and stuff, and we just started filling in all the information and he sorted out the results. Um, now that was updated in 2015. Um, I should also say that John Russell, the guy who's written the book about the Quail Championship Invitational. Yep. He's done some family tree type results for the winners of the Invitational. Right. Through the years and such. And I, and, and we, I'm, I'm, I know you directed me to him and, and I need to get him on or whatever, because you guys, y'all have a little bit of a different process now, you know, from what we were talking about before, what's the comparison, I guess. Well, uh, John looks at the damn sire mm-hmm. for each of the, the, he looks at the sire of the dog and the damn sire and doesn't pay any attention to the mother daughter line. It, it's all on a, it's all misogynistic. It's all male oriented. <laughs> um, and that's the way it has been done by breeders throughout history up until people started looking at mitochondrial DNA and mother daughter lines because of that. So if you know, so that's a relatively new thing to to try to sort out the mother daughter lines. So it, and is there's it a, really not that many people that are that familiar with it all. Okay, so that was going to be my question because I was just like, if we know all of this about the importance of you know the 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 dams and and that whole relationship between a mother and daughter, why are we still so heavily reliant on you know stud dogs? You know, like. But I guess that you answered the question before I had a chance to to ask it, which is that's just new, you know, it's just new information, new way of thinking. Another thing that you wouldn't realize until you actually see the mother daughter family tree in a chart form Mm -hmm. 
you have a top producing dog, let's say Barlane Dot or Nell's Rambling On or uh, Village Girl, Spunky Creek Amazon, um, you know, really top producing females. And you will see a lot of daughters and a lot of granddaughters that were real heavily bred. And by the time you get to great granddaughters or further in the generations, Mm -hmm. the relation, you know, the, that top female no longer shows up on the pedigree. Gotcha. When you're looking at three or four generations in the pedigree and that top females in the fifth generation, you no longer make that, relationship line the way that you do with stud dogs because stud dogs are are fewer in number you know that there's fewer top stud dogs than there are females that they're bred to okay um i mean but i i just when you explained it to me i liked stressing the female you know um and and putting the emphasis on there when we were talking about um you know the mitochondria and 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 stuff like that um that was something that i learned from you and uh you know it just it makes a lot of sense you know now um you know i would wonder you know like now let's say miller speed dial right like what would it you know, what uh, are people advertising, you know, breeding to his mom, you know, or 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 those kinds of like, you see what I'm saying? Like you see breeding to Miller speed dial, but like. Well, we'll see. Let's look at a different female. Let's look at Sparkles, who is one of the top producing dams of all times. She has more open all-age champions than any other dam before her. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of daughters of Sparkles out there that people are going to be breeding and granddaughters of Sparkles. How long it will be before you see the next top Sparkles in that line it might be one of her daughters, but it's more likely one of her great great granddaughters. Right, and in that yeah, article, Sparkles, you, you mentioned Sparkles that too. goes back to Hannah Zellhulu, and there's about what four generations separation there, mm-hmm. and uh, from Hannah Zellhulu uh, goes back about four or five generations to a bitch named Lan Sue, who was a pretty good producer, you know, not record breaker or anything. Um, Four or five generations back from her, you get the sister of Safari, national champion Safari. And her, you know, so her mother. Um, uh, Safari never had puppies, but her sister had plenty. Gotcha. So that that actual that's that's true with a lot of the top performing females. Mm-hmm. You'll see all the time. Um, I'm trying to think of the 
the breeding that had um, Bear Creek Bess and I believe it was Bear Creek Bess, Lehar's Main Tech. Mm-hmm. Or let me see what that was. Gotta look at the chart to remind myself of these names. That would be a difference. Go boy stuff. If I remember really. Um, it had Lehars Main Tech, Bear Creek Bess, and Cherokee Frederick were all all from that same breeding. Uh, Bear Creek Bess and Lehars Main Tech are both Hall of Fame females. Uh, but they never had any puppies to speak of. Okay. Although their sister, House's Shady Lady, carried that line of females on. And I don't recall House's Shady Lady having that great of a field trial career. So is it a thing yeah, that so the performers... Quite often, are... that the, quite often that the really high-performing females never really go into heat when they're conditioned like that, uh, that was what I was going to say. Like, is it, is it a thing like the relate the, the actual athleticism of that dog maybe cuts into the reproductive process? Yes and no. There's been other really like Spunky Creek Amazon, for example, was a super duper performer and a producer too. Yeah, but it sounds like she's you know, an outlier it's, it's though. Entirely, it's entirely possible that, you know, a, a champion female produces puppies. Right. Um, but how most of the most of the time the the field trialers don't want to take that dog out of the circuit for six months or a year for them to have puppies. They want to keep competing with, with that dog when it's winning. Right. So you that's a that draws against you know a high performing female being used as a dam too. Just in some instances, it's better just to look at her sister and 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 go off of that. I was wondering that man, like, okay, so is it is it more so? Or is it is it a, a more so or just the, the the way the dice roll? But it seems like when you've got a high performing you know female, something about the amount of work on that seems to cut in on the reproductive ability to pass that on. Or it's just just sheer numbers. Like she's just not being bred a lot. Well, look at the three daughters of Hannah's L. Hugh Lou. All three of them were Hall of Fame shooting dog champions. Um, Swami, L. Hugh Swami, Hannah Bell, and Sunflower. Mm-hmm. And Swami and Sunflower were bred when they were still in competition. And Hannibal wasn't bred until after she had retired from competition. So there's a lot more 
offspring descendants of Sunflower and Swami than there are Hannibal. Mm. Okay. It was just the choice, just the choice of the the people who were running those dogs, you know. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, that's that's just an interesting little. And Sparkles comes down from Sunflower. Who was a good? Who was a perform? Who was a, a champion? Okay. So, hmm. Yeah. So there are, you know, perf- there are highly performing females that that do produce good litters. It's um, just a matter of choice for a lot of people. Right. So. Other- Let's 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 kind of stay in that ballpark. Let's talk about blue hens a little bit, you know, and and how that's, you know, and and their prevalence and 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 some of the specific dogs there. I'm sorry, I didn't follow you. <laughs> uh, well, let's just let's talk about blue hens and and, and some of the notable ones. Um, you know, the ones that I know. Robert Whaley was specifically uh, fond of what was it? Amazon's was it Village Girl? Village Girl. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk about some of the notable females in in that bunch. All right. So let me pull up a chart on Village Girl. Is <laughs> she come? Is she from Trinket? Um, that's what I'm trying to determine right here real quickly. Yes, I believe that's Trinket. And that is the vast majority of the Trinket family females alive today come from village girl okay you know and and is there now is, is village girl is that where whaley does that i guess come down to snakefoot and and uh strike and all of that stuff or is that a totally separate well, dog let's go backwards a little bit first okay
Well, truly. I thought I had it to go back further than this. problem with having 45 poster board charts to look at. <laughs> having the whole history of bird dogs in, in your house. So, so I've shot Again, I suppose you're good. I can cut all of this out. You're fine. I uh, I actually need to get. I left all of my history books downstairs, but um, yeah, you're you're totally fine.
is the wrong family. Rather than Trinket, it's Nelly. So that's that's where they're coming from, is Nelly? Uh, that's where Village Girl belongs. Okay. I thought it was Trinket the whole time. It's charts here, and we'll start again. I don't know what I feel. I don't know where I got that from, but I felt I felt so right when I said that, too. Because I'm. And I'm, I'm I'm really interested in seeing if I can trace back my own dog's pedigree, see how far back I can go from him. All right, so. Ready? Yep. All right. So, Village Girl's grandmother was Zudora M., who was 0, 4, and 15. Her dad was Mary Winola, who was 0, 3, and 15. So, they were starting to recognize, hey, this is a pretty good producing female line. Mm-hmm. And then Mary Winola had two daughters. One was called Mary Winola Ferris, and the other was Village Girl. They were daughters of Ferris Manitoba Rat. Village Girl, of course, produced Village Boy, but she was bred to Seaview Rex. And had two daughters, Zorview Missy, who was one eight and seventy-three, and Miss Village Girl was two ten and sixty-three. Okay. One of Zorview Missy's daughters was a bitch named Jane Pepper, who was a contestant at the national championship. She had fifteen wins. Um Miss Village Girl produced a national championship contestant. Her daughter, Willing Village Girl, produced a national champion contestant um, who was female. That's Ariella. Ariella was the dam of Pandemonium's Dinah, or Diana. Um, and she was the dam of Paladin's Village Girl brother of, of the her champion. Uh, you also have Ariel's willing girl who was a daughter of willing village willing village girl and she was bred to Texas Ranger and that produced Ranger's Ariel girl and you go one, two, three 
four generations later, you have a bitch named Mayora Everglade Bell, who was 0, 16, and 69. She was bred to the Arkansas Ranger and produced Barlane Dot, who was 0, 24, and 113. Of course, Barlane Dot is one of our all-time great blue hens bred principally to Riggins White Knight. Right. And has any number of different females of recent uh, dams of recent champions. Uh, Keith Wright's bitch touches Sandy mm-hmm. belongs there. Uh, a female contestant that Andy Daugherty was running up until just a year or two ago was a bitch named Salem's Andy Oakley. And she goes, she belongs in that batch of barling stock. Okay. Females. Now, aside from going to Barlane's dot, another daughter of Ariel's willing girl was Arielistic Kate, who was a zero, zero, zero. And you're going to go through a number of generations of basically zero, zero, zero dogs of females um, until you come to Penny White Cloud, who was four, five, and 38, and she was the dam of Nell's Rambling On, who was 027210. And Nell's Rambling On has her whole little family of, of descendants, nowhere near as big as Barley Dot, but a good-sized little family. Right. Um, and that most is- recently, the the females that had the Quinton's name, uh, Quinton's Pretty Baby, Quinton's Flying High, Quinton's Black Eyed Sue, all produced um, all produced recent national championship contestants. And then the third daughter of Ariel's Willing Girl was Ranger's Aerial Lullaby. And then we'll go through another batch of generations of, of females. So you come to Elsaw's Doll, who was national champion female. And she produced a, a good family of female descendants uh, underneath her. Gotcha. Um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven national championship contestants underneath her. You know, and that's all that same family. Which all that that branch of the Nelly Nelly's family. Um, another branch early on. was came down from uh, Chess Venus Mabel mm-hmm. uh, three females line of three females and then it breaks up into branches 
Um, one of the branches leads to Voice Queen, who was the dam of, was it Riprap or Chingo or? remember you know we never we um i don't i don't recall if we got into rip rapping Django. uh boys queen was the damn official friend okay and uh in that same line of dogs but four generations separated you know, so cousins four time removed is Brown's Bella Pointer, who was the dam of Harkash. You know, so that that branch of the family was recognized early on, you know, with Fischl, Frank, and Harkash right. coming from them. Now, well, if, you, if you roll all that forward, um, the most recent, it looks like the most recent female there was a bitch named Twin Lakes Wishbone. Okay. Now, what did, now, what, what were the accomplishments? Yeah, that, that's still, hmm? What were the, accompl- the accomplishments of Wishbone? She was the dam of a national championship contestant. Did she do any trial on herself? I can pick it up and tell you who she was the dam of. Okay. Just, <laughs> she was the dam of Shadow's Full Throttle. Okay. Who I believe is still on the circuit now. Uh, I re- that, was, that was one of Robin Gates' dogs, but mm-hmm. I think somebody's going to continue to run that dog. Okay. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, you know, I have you had you ever met Robin Gates? Did you get a chance to meet him? Just real briefly. Okay, how was that? Just kind of like, hi, how you doing? It's okay. kind of like being a uh, a Boston Red Sox fan and. Somebody introduces you to Ted Williams. <laughs> You're a little bit uh, struck there. Right. Um, so she was there at John Rex and Diane's. Okay. One time when I was visiting with them. So I think that's another, you know, component of, of this. You know, the field trial world seems... Honestly, it seems huge, man, but it, it's uh, it's a very, very, very close-knit circle. It's very, very, uh, like, it, it seems to be that every it, everybody doesn't seem so far away. You know, I mean, it, and it's typically, like, a lot of these guys work with each other up north. You know, right? the way it has been told to me, it's, it's a very tight-knit little family. So. Yes, although field trials now are divided up into so many different segments, mm-hmm. you could say that 
the shoot to retrieve guys are a real tight knit family, but they're really not part of the same family as like the cover dog Grousewood right. dog people are, or the NBHA walking trials. Right. You know, the, that's gotten divided up a lot more. It, um, of course, you know, before 1960, everything was all age and that there was only one, one group of dog people, you right. know, now were, and even in the earliest days of the shooting dog, uh, championships, there was a lot of crossover. Um, a lot of these professional handlers ran, uh, their dogs in, in the shooting dog competitions and such. I'm trying to think of, uh, the Gates brothers had a bitch named Barshu cross up mm-hmm. and Robin Gates would run Barshu cross up in the shooting dog championships. And she won the national open shooting dog championship one year. Let me see if I can, that's so interesting I was going to say see if I can get what year that was let's make this sort again Barshu cross-up. Where are you? There she is. So she ran at the national championship with John Rex in 1982. And I believe that that's the same year that she won the Quail Championship Invitational um, with John Rex handling. Okay. And then let me punch up a different page here. And in 1980, she won the National Open Shooting Dog Championship with Robin Gates handling her. Dang, okay. So they would, they would, you know, they would go back and forth and uh, all age and shooting dogs. Right. Um, David Grubb won the National Shooting Dog championship several times um and he's more known as uh an all-age handler 
having a, an, an all age national champion. Okay. Um, uh, Buzzy dog, Doggerty and Andy Doggerty brothers, uh, Buzzy ran shooting dogs and Andy ran all age, but they had some dogs that went back and forth between the two of them. Okay. And so there, there, there was a lot more crossover in that earlier, in those early, you know, the handlers weren't so exclusively, um, you know, either shooting dog or, or all age handlers so, the way they are now. Right. So when, um, I guess, when did Tommy, the... Tommy Davis had a dog that he ran, um, Davis final touch that he ran both shooting dog and all age. Mm. When he was when he was getting started, gotcha. Okay, so I guess when did when was the transition to you know to not have dogs, you know, crossing over? When did that kind of start taking place? Well, it's still there's still dogs that cross over that. Well, we mentioned strut um, nation. Real recently, we've had um, Scott Jordan. Mm-hmm. His dog has won amateur shooting dog championships, amateur all-age championships, open shooting dog championships, and open all-age championships. Right. I mean, he's he's gone to all all those different things with that with that dog, um, Game Strut, mm-hmm. and. Uh, not that long ago, a dog was running Physique's boss, who won the National Open Shooting Dog Championship, and then transitioned to be an all-age dog. Gotcha. Okay. And and Whaley still, got rid of some of for his. For example, national national champion uh, Lee Pan. Um, was run as a shooting dog by Richard Woolover and uh, was run in the all-age world by Gary Pinalto. Right. Okay. Um, and you have Lee Pan's saddle too, right? Yeah, I have the trophy saddle for Lee Pan. Lucky. Sitting in my living room. Lucky. Yeah, it was... It'll wind up at the museum someday. <laughs> so let's let's uh you know kind of move a little bit forward. Um, because you know I'm gonna ask you about the L Hugh stuff now. <laughs> and I want your opinion. Am I this is so such a subjective uh question or not subjective, but I guess a, a very uh broad question, but <laughs> I am very, very, very biased. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of 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 L Hugh dogs. I mean, just for all around thing. Do you think that L Hugh dogs were overall designed to be serious field trial competitors or better hunting hunting dogs? Well, Wheelie was a serious. Field trial competitor. He was a shooting dog competitor, yeah. He went head-to-head with Dr. Dr. Ditchman many, many years. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the pheasant championship was where they used to be in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. And that was one of the big trials they would always go head to head at. Um, LU dogs are, it's a real interesting study in breeding. He starts out almost exclusively with a father-son line that comes from Tarhelius Lucky Strike. Mm -hmm. And he breeds that about five or six generations. You know, with that's the older LHU dogs like Marksman, Jungle, Sharpshooter. Right. That led up to Smart and Guardrail. And then he takes the line of females that had been most successful for him and stopped breeding them to that sire line. He sort of like gives up on that sire line and starts hunting around for another sire line. And he, he breeds to a whole bunch of different dogs, Redwater Rex and, um, some of the Riggins white night dogs and such. Mm -hmm. And he finally decides on hooks bounty hunter. And he starts breeding that those last generations he's breeding down from hooks bounty hunter. And then he basically gives up the older female line and starts with, uh, what was it? Cindy Wahoo Lou or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and jumps onto an entirely different uh, female line. That's that uh, trinket line that we started with earlier. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm gonna pull that chart out now. Yeah, I want to see because I'm like I said, I'm 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 interested in trying to trace the genetics of my own dog back. And I know he's got you know Strike and L and Snakefoot and Guardrail stuff in there, so I'm curious to see where that goes. Okay, so I'm gonna pull that one of the early. High producing females on that was like listed in Foster's book was a bitch named Dora Kent. Mm -hmm. And she's from Trinket and she has her branch of the Trinket family. And then the other branch of the Trinket family. And I should say that in the Dora Kent branch of the Trinket family, let's bring that up to more modern girls. Um, that's where you get some of Dr. Huffman's early females, uh, Paladin's Royal, Missy Paladin's Royal, Cheryl, uh, L.H. Cotton, Whippoorwill High Ann, Quicksilver Pink, uh, and that batch, that batch of females. Mm -hmm. The other branch of trinket 
leads to Spunky Creek Amazon. And Spunky Creek Amazon has a pretty darn big family too. Uh, Amazon Village Girl being her most principal daughter. Right. Um, Amazon's Village Girl was bred to both Lester's Enjoys Wahoo, uh, Tyson, Ariel, and Lexington Jake. Now, it's interesting that the line from Lexington Jake leads to Sheila's Dot, who was one of the highest rank, ranking individually producing females. Uh, she was the dam of Susan Peters and Hall of Fame uh, female contestants. But that's not the line that Wheelie ended up using. He ended up using uh, the line that went Amazon's Nose Girl, Nylon, Titan's Girl, and then this one, two, three, four, five, six generations until you get to Wahoo Cindy Lou. She was bred to Elhu Tut Lou and Elhu Huckster, produced Elhu Huckatuck. Um, and that's that where you get that big branch of all the different Elhu dogs. Okay. Um, Elhu Dancing Gypsy, Elhu Rendezvous, Elhu Kiwi um, were the principal ones of those. Yeah, so, and all of um, that fundamentally goes back to Elhu Rendezvous um, is the grandmother of Elhu Katie Lee and two of her daughters. Blackhawks, Amy, and Sparrowhawk, and then one of her granddaughters, Daisy Bat River, have all produced all-age dogs. Okay. You know, so it it spent its time in the shooting dog and now winding its way back around to the all-age dogs. And you said, it, it, you know, the genetics will do that. Like, you know, you'll see it kind of circle itself. Well, the, the top-producing females are top-producing females regardless who you're breeding them to. They're, you know, if you're breeding them to champion shooting dogs, you're, you're looking, you're having a top-producing female you're hoping to get champion shooting dogs out of. If you're breeding them to an all-age dog, you're hoping to get all-age dogs mm-hmm. and such. But that, that has little difference in the you know the top producing female lines so um one of of the real common myths you'll hear is that um a certain mr x stud dog produced really good daughters he might not have ever produced any male offspring that were winners but his daughters were great producers right which has something. I haven't ever really seen any evidence for that sort of thing coming true that you know uh 
line of mediocre females become great producing females just because they met up with the right stud dog. That that's just never I've never seen that happen. Right. In any great you know, not measurably. Um, most of the time a line of top producing females will meet up with a popular stud dog and produce mediocre results, the daughters from that will breed to a real prepotent stud dog and have good results. You know, it's not, it's not that the uh, mediocre stud dog all of a sudden made that female line a top producing female line. It was a top producing female line when it met up with that mediocre stud dog is the daughters or granddaughters from that, you know, are still top produced from a top producing line when they meet up with a prepotent stud dog, the next generation. Right. Um, that being said, there were early on in the early development of Changing from the heavyweight dogs like Fischl's Frank to smaller, faster dogs like John Proctor, Muscle Souls, Jake, you saw the daughters of Hard Cash and Alfred's John figure real highly in that because they were breeding purposely to get smaller, mm-hmm. faster dogs out of it. Mm-hmm. And, that, and so that was a big turning point. You see a lot written about the daughters of Alfred's John. The daughters of Hard Cash were every bit as important in that um, early mix. Right. But that was really a, a selection for size. Um, and once again, it was the top producing female lines being bred to. Alfred's John or hard cash that produced the best results. Not every daughter of Alfred's John uh, produced that, those winners. Right. They, they took the best of, of what they had and then kept working with it. So, in, in again, in order to get smaller dogs, gotcha. So, um, because all of that happened, I mean, in a very, very, very short time frame, you know, the change in size. Yeah, you have um, the dam of the dam official Frank. And hard cash were both from that Nelly family. Um, the dam of John Proctor was real heavily bred to Alfred's John. Mm-hmm. And then the dam of Muscle Shoals Jake was real heavily bred to Rags Royal Popper, who was a son of Hardcash. Um, they were 
very much throwing those smaller, faster dogs or the daughters of those smaller, faster dogs at that that particular sire line. Right. That that was the change from Fischl's Frank, John Proctor, Ferris Jake. Ferris Jake's dam was Lady Ferris, and then Muscle Shoals Jake. Right. From there. And in that four generations, there was a real remarkable change in the dogs. And 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 do you think that's still uh I guess that's the one thing that pretty much made them take over, take the lead in trials over setters. Yes, by the time of Muscle Shoals Jake, there were very few setter winners that were competing against okay. those dogs. And that size, that the size was the thing. You can, that, count the, you can count the setter national champions since then on, you know, the fingers of one hand. Gotcha. Um. It would be what short, uh, sports peerless, Mississippi Zev, Johnny Crockett, and Shadow Oak Bow. Which came and the, all four of those dogs are from the same same setter sire line. Right. Well, the setter guys they weren't really as diverse as the pointer guys, as far as, you know, their breedings, they, they pretty much stuck to the same, same formula from what I understand. Well, the centers got so caught up in that Llewellyn time that it created this bottleneck where Everything that went forward from there, you know, went back to those Llewellyn ditches and the really good producing native setter bitches that were around prior to Llewellyn's fell out of favor. They were called grades. They were, you know, given that slur mm-hmm. and, you know, nobody would, would breed them to them anymore in, in favor of the Llewellyn advertising, really. Right. Um, and that created that bottleneck that really limited the uh, selection of of female lines for setters. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm hoping to, you know, get a bigger population of setters into a survey to really see how many other setter female lines are out there because there are a few um, that don't go back to Ruby or Old Mall, the Llewellyn females. Right. Okay. Well, when you do that, you know, I definitely want to keep on to that. You know, I'm still hung up on that and I ain't going to, we ain't going to get too far in it. That's another episode, but that whole plan, uh, uh, blackjack with a 10 thing with setters, but you know, I'm still pretty hung up on that. I thought that was a really good comparison or a really good analogy. Um, but let's, um, you know, I kind of want to wrap up because we got a lot of information here. Like I want to, you know, kind of wrap up on some of the major tipping points 
on, you know, the earliest of pointer history. Like when we go through all of this and we've got two parts to it, what what is the biggest takeaway from all of this that we're talking about? Each branch of the Pointer family tree had its particular heyday when the, those dogs were at the at the top. Um, just looking at Rip Rap and Jingo, you know, division early on, and Rip Rap won and Jingo lost. And you don't find any Jingo dogs anymore. And that's kind of the way that the whole family tree system works. That it shakes out to what is the dominant sire line. And there's other consequential sire lines that carry on for many generations. But usually over a period of 10 generations... Um, those collateral lines will drop out. Right. You don't see any of the descendants of uh, Warhoop Jake anymore. That's that's basically gone extinct. Um, Dunn's Fearless Bud being the, nat- the last real notable name from that mm-hmm. line. And he was, what, 30 years ago? Right. And... I don't know of any living dogs that are from that direct sire line anymore. Dunn's Fearless, so, Fearless Buds was, what, 70, 1970-something? I think I was thinking he was 90s. I don't have a good way of... Uh, let's see. Was he 90s or 70s? Huh. Dunn, Dunn's Fearless Bud was 1990. Okay, so right on the dot. I don't... What came um, so that you know pretty much every thing recently has has been you know Miller descendant dogs from Regan's White Knight, what we call white dogs mm-hmm. in the last two or three years. You can see a break in that Miller's family between the descendants of Whippoorwill Wildcard, Whippoorwill Wild again, and the descendants of Miller's White Powder to like Miller's Happy Jack dialing in Dunn's Tried and True. You know, and so that family is kind of breaking into two lines now. Um, and the addition Scoboy line, the, the line that comes down from Tar Heel John and CV Rex and all of those dogs way back when to, you know, Builder's Risk and addition Scoboy, you know, are now the dogs that, um, Sean Derrick, uh, have bred. Um, Aaron's uh, Muddy River uh, mm-hmm. descendants, and that includes those dogs that Keith Wright has been breeding from 
Lance's last night and House's Ring of Fire and uh, Touches White Knight and, and those dogs. Right. So are you know, we, so are, are the, we the, seeing so just the, the rise of a bunch of new families? Those, the population of those those dogs has actually grown right. um, in, in recent years, you know, as far as like the number of champions being produced. Right. So are, are, are we seeing just the rise of just 100% totally new families just, you know, kind of taking over? No, you see the different branches of the family tree become dominant and then wane out for several generations and then become dominant again, like what's okay. happening with Editions Go Boy. Um, you know, the Lexington Jake dogs, his actual descendants are, were, you know, pretty sparse until Riggins White Knight came along and then, then the number of dogs kind of exploded there. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, I um... like looking at the the other descendant line for Muscle Souls. Jake is that Jake's rigor wrap to fast delivery, and fast delivery had you know several branches underneath him. Uh, Newman's delivery Dan to Rambling Rebel Dan started the rebel dogs rambling rebel was a son of rambling rebel dan mm-hmm. you know and so you have that rebel batch of dogs but you also had the dogs that were from um stormy mike and the haberdasher and they all got delivery names like fast Drug delivery was one of the top sires in that batch. I never so even heard of that well, dog. Well, that branch of the family has now, it hasn't gone extinct, but they're pretty few and far between. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think uh, of Mike Branson's, Branson's dog's name. That carried that on. The Haberdasher was the brother of Space Master, not Stormy Mike. Sorry again. And then he was the sire of Home Again Mike, and there was a line of dogs that came down from Home Again Mike. Um, the Haberdasher was the sire of John D. Monroe, and that led to a whole bunch of shooting dogs. Uh, most recently, big name in that line was Sugar Knoll Buckshot. Okay. And then you have Fast delivery. Let's see. Fast delivery. Home again. Mike had a brother named the druggist who produced druggist delivery, who produced fast drug delivery. 
And fast drug delivery had was the sire of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different national championship contestants, which is pretty high on the list of top sire dogs. Right. Um, the one of those that bred on closest to the present was a dog named Ennis Drug Delivery, who had a grandson named Branscombe's Nickel. And there's a whole bunch of different uh, shooting dogs that have come out of that. Uh, Crow's Little Joe and Slate Creek Doc. Um, and those dogs are still around. You know, and they haven't gone extinct. Right. But you don't see those delivery dogs in the all-age world much anymore. Do you see them in, in the shooting dog world at least, or, or they're just out? To some extent, there's just, it's just not a very it, – it's not a very populous branch of the family. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, the, the high point was, you know, the sons of fast drug delivery. And then it's, you know, gotten narrower since then. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, well, the names are you, also. You can kind of say that the the same thing has kind of happened with uh, the high point of for the rebel dogs were probably the sons of Rebel Hawk and and Buckboard, you know, and things have become narrower since then. Okay. Um, that's sort of what happened with the. Uh, air pilot, you know, to Paladin, to Paladin's Royal Flush Royal Air. And then all of a sudden you had, you know, 50 different potential stud dogs in that family from Oklahoma Flush, the Arkansas Ranger, you know, just all over the place, the Texas Squire and such. And, and none of those ever really developed you know, into a persistent family. Um, uh, there's still dogs that come down from Fiddler that are still around. There's still dogs that come down from Yastrzemski uh, that are out on the West Coast and are pretty competitive out there. But, you know, for the most part, that Paladin's Royal Flush line of dogs has, has gotten much narrower. Right. It's, they haven't disappeared all entirely, but now who's, you know. who's got some of those descendants? Well, let's see. Um, uh, that bitch Sheldon Tweer was running not too long ago. Sleepless in Sacramento would mm-hmm. be, would belong to that. Um, Sean Kelly, had a number of different dogs with IB names, like IB Fenway was one that I think that dog died young, but that's one that struck my mind. Okay. Um, in that batch, uh, Kelly's Talking Smack was a pretty big winner out there. Um, that wasn't that long ago. Um, Saddle Up Non Believers 
was was one of the best named dogs, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Saddle up, (laughs) non-believer. Why do you like that name so much? It's just it's just a really good name. Um, let's let's talk so about that other man. Good names I've always liked. Uh, well, we see we we've been on names for a minute. It, it just to I, open it up. I think that I think that dog named Sliced Bread that was pretty much genius <laughs> in naming a dog. So, um, at Sliced Bread, we got we we've got drug dealer names. You know, um, <laughs> one of the old time dogs. You know. Like, they would name a dog after its sire, you know, and, you know, sometimes they would build on that two, three generations. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a dog that was named Ray's Jingo Jingolita. What the heck? <laughs> you know, just for the, you know, third generation of Jinkoing the dogs. Wow. That's, that's interesting. You know, I, I have the toughest time naming my own dog. The honeymoon in Vegas was, you know, my, I guess mine come from, I, I think I'm going to name all of my dogs based around like something related to like our wedding or honeymoon or something like that. My wife and I's, um, yeah, you just wait. That daughter of yours will be naming dogs in no time. Oh my God. She can do the, she can do the call names. I need the pedigree names though, man. <laughs> She could do the call names because I'm terrible. Like I don't want to name my dog Bob. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I just, I just don't. I feel like they're so bland. Um, but you know she can name it whatever she wants to. I, I, you know to call it. But I, I need the name that's written in the field dog stud book. That, that is what I care about. <laughs> now every, every once in a while you. You come up with a, you know, that somebody comes up with a dog name um, that's just a simple word like Safari or Saturn. You know, I like Luminary, so, um, man. I that, really like Luminary. Uh, sure. Ariel yeah. was another one um, of his dogs. Uh I like Valiant. And, and I, I, you know, I admire the people that can, you know, think up of a, a name like uh, just a one word name. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, I, I, I think Valiant is a good name. Um, uh, True Confidence is a good one. Um, I... I, I like... remember that setter's name. There was... Oh, we'll get the setter girl on to tell us about setter names. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, I think about stuff like that. I know that's so trivial, but names, man, I think they, they just go back to the dog. Like you, you, you get a good dog name. You might come out with something. All right. Well, in some aspect of it, it is advertising. It It is advertising. It is. When you have a, a name, like Paladin mm-hmm. or Ariel, 
where you see four or five generations of dogs that have some version of paladin or aerial mm-hmm. in their name. Um, it, it advertises paladin and aerial pretty well. Well, think about the rebel um, dogs. Sure. Although there's not as many consistent generation, one generation after another that were named rebel. Yeah. You know, that, um, is, um, going back to the old time dogs, the combination of John Proctor, Lady Ferris, that produced Ferris Jake, mm-hmm. you saw generations, like five or six generations, where they would have Ferris Proctor or Proctor Ferris in the name. In the name, yeah. You know, Miss Proctor Ferris or Lady Proctor Ferris or um, Proctor Ferris Rat, you know, Proctor Ferris Jake, you know, all that kind of uh, just because. Proctor, John Proctor and Lady Ferris were, you know, the names they wanted to advertise with. Mm-hmm. Um, the dog Mac Pritchett. I like that one, too. Well, that was actually a man. I know first. it was a man first, but I, I liked it as a dog name. You know, um, Mac Pritchett actually ran Mac Pritchett, which I thought was actually kind of cool. You know, um, and and I guess that was the advertisement for the trainer, maybe. No, I think they they named that dog honorific after him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was common back then to name to give dogs honorific names. You had a pretty important son of. Uh, who was it? That was named Louis C. Morris. Mm-hmm. He was a son of Fischl's Frank. Um, uh, there was a, the sire of Alfred's John was named Dave Kent, who was a handler back then. Okay. Gotcha. 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 It, it wasn't that uncommon to to name dogs after people. Right. Well, I uh, I'm I'm still thinking. Billy Billy Morton ran a shooting dog named uh, uh, Ben Ran. Named after Man Ran, yeah. That was cool. You know, that that was that was definitely cool. Speaking of, man, you know, you've given me a ton of uh already really good references on Black Scouts and stuff. I meant to tell I need to publicly thank you for that. Um you you giving me some homework to do. Well, hopefully we can get you in touch with some of those guys that are still living. Yeah. Because it would be really nice to hear you interview them. Yeah. Well, Robert Burr, 
um, is on my list. Um, so other, you, you were able to find him? I'm I'm searching. I hadn't gotten him yet. Okay. The guy that I gotten in contact with, I don't think he's um, I don't think he's related. I I think, and I'm I, I'm going to interview him just because I think the story is interesting. But um, I don't think he's related to to Robert Burr or anything like that. I just think just kind of a coincidence. So. Well, It'd be nice to find out if John Philpot's still alive or. You think, I think John Philpot, I mean, that photo was a long time ago. It'd be cool if he still was, it'd be great. But the thing is, um, he would, he would probably be in his like eighties or nineties now. Yeah. He'd be, he'd be pretty old. So, um, I still think that was an amazing photo that you sent regardless. Um, you know, and to, and to go there. Um, so let me, let me ask you this out of all of the, uh, like I, 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 I can't stop buying books, but out of all the old handler books, the Jack Harper books, the earth Shelley books, which I got all of that. stuff, which one is one that you would say like, folks need to get first if they don't get anything else first which one would you say oh lord Hmm. um it'd be a toss-up between jack harper and ed mcferrier's book uh, reflections really i wouldn't i wouldn't say that either of those necessarily are my very favorite uh-huh. Um I I have a favorite elsewhere. Uh I think the book by Bill Allen called The Unforgettables is just a superb little book. You've mentioned that a, a I, number I think, of times. I think Hoyle Eaton yep. book The White Knight Story yep. is a really good book. You consider that it's written in just this really simple folksy way mm-hmm. that, that just, it makes it a real sort of gym. You, you know what? Separate. Something. And then I, I think that, that Bob wheels book wing and shot. Yeah. The first, the first of his books. Yeah. Is, is a really good book too. Really? Um, I, you know what, man? And I, 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 I have uh, wing and shot because I have a dog from, you know, that is a descendant of L. Hugh Blood. So my thought process was, well, hell, if I'm going to get a dog from this line, I might as well train it according to what the guy that bred it, you know. Does that make sense? Like, I might as well just read his stuff. Um, and it and it, it sits on my, it's one of my favorite books. Um, but I think, Snakefoot is probably more narrative for me, and I, I like that. Wing and Shot, I like it as a training book, but it doesn't really give me a whole lot of insight into anything else. Well, you consider the dogs that he was he had at the time of Wing and Shot versus, you know, Snakefoot was written at the end of his career. You could right. talk about 
a great many of his own dogs right. in it. But I think just the the information that's in Wing and Shot is is really good. Yeah. No, I when I tell you I abide by Wing and Shot, like I mean, I keep it near and dear. Um, I okay, actually bought two of couple, those. A couple of sleepers. Uh huh. Um, Algonquin is a novel. It's not a training book, or it's not you know history or anything like that. It's just a novel, but it's a great bird dog book. Algonquin. Um, it was a children's book. You can pick it up for like a dime. Okay. Um, the John Criswell book Cub about Leon Covington mm-hmm. is a real entertaining book. Okay. Um, you'll never find a copy of it. It's really quite scarce, but Earl Bufkin's book um was a Purina published, like if you bought so many sacks of dog food, they give you the book free kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a real charming little book. Okay. All right. Let's see what else. I think I want to do that. You know what I did like about, and I want to as get. As far as a training book goes, mm-hmm. the, the Delmar Smith. Oh book, yeah, I think it was actually written by Bill Tarrant. Bill Tarrant, but, yeah, that's a that's a classic. You know, you um, got to have that. And he wrote a bunch of different training books. Get the one that's the Delmar Smith version. Yeah. No, I actually, I have, so I bought, there are two, there are books that I bought two copies of. Delmar Smith's book was one because I wrote in the first one. And then the second was uh, Wing and Shot. I bought two copies of that because I wrote in the first one, didn't know any better. But um, another writer that doesn't get a lot of press who who was really a good writer was Horace Lytle. Yep. I got one of his. uh, He wrote a book called Point. And another one called "How to Win at Fe- How to Win at Field Trials." Mm-hmm. Those are both real, real good reads, entertainment wise. Okay. Um, there was something in the Hoyle Eaton book that I liked when you sent me that page. I didn't realize he was training dogs in his garage. Man, that's a piece of the narrative that I think is just. Well, yeah, just Hoyle's book is just so folksy, homey. Uh, you, you can tell it, you know, it wasn't written by somebody who had, you know, a PhD or anything. You know, it, it was just Hoyle. Right. And, and, it, and, it ha- and it has that sort of charm. Right. Um, and that's the same thing that's true with that Earl Bufkin book is that it has that sort of charm. Okay. Okay. Well, I, uh, I definitely want to put that out there. I, I, I read so much into and history. Then, 
for old time bird dog information. Mm-hmm. There's this tiny little book called Bird Dogs, Their History and Achievements yep. by Hawkwalt. Yep. That's and a- it's not, but like maybe a hundred pages long or something. Yep. Little bitty book. That's but a it has it has the summary information of of everything that counts. Right. You know, going forward. Setters and pointers both. Yep. Um and then the other little book by Hawkwalt is Makers of Bird Dog History, which is the story of all the national champions up to Matt Tyre. Okay. Um, it's the, you know, narrative story of them. And such that you don't get in that national champions book. The national champions book is good, but it's just like field. I mean, it's just field trial reports, but I'm glad I got it. Well, yeah, that's just all they tried to do was compile the, you know, the reports from the American field. Um, That's pretty much the same as, uh, John Russell's book on the Invitational. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's good that somebody did that, right? That you can have it as a reference to 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 use. I mean, I I think it's it's good. I I'm trying to find my way into picking up where. I don't know, find a niche within all of this research, I guess, you know, I mean, you and, and, and Craig Koshik, both of you guys have, you know, a niche and I'm glad, you know, I had you guys both on, you know, but I'm trying to kind of figure out like where, where does all my information take me and, and, and how can I be useful? You know, the, the vibe, the collection of a library like that is it's few and far between. Mm-hmm. There's not enough of the old time owners or handlers that wrote books about their dogs. Um, David Grubb wrote a pretty good book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Think of who else? Earl Crangle wrote a book. Um, yep. Three selections. I will say one more thing about all of that. Uh The Christmas issues of the American field have always had some of the very best writers. The O.C. Keller leading pointer sire lines articles and Mm -hmm. 
Bill Allen would do history articles. Um, Dave Fletcher would do history articles. Um, the, those Christmas issues have, have, have always had um, some of the best references when you want to learn the history of the, the field trial game. Right. Now, all right, so that'll be that's kind I of. I can't a, remember when they first started doing Christmas issues. I think it was around around World War II time or something. Okay. After that, they started doing that Christmas special issue. Okay. Just kind of, you know, adding that into the the list of of American fields that I need to try to get my hands on. So quite often you'll get sets of American fields for free and they won't have any Christmas issues in them in the set at all. Really? And the people will pull out all the Christmas issues and keep the, keep those and get rid of the, the other back issues. <laughs> um, you occasionally see the Christmas issues on eBay and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucky to get them at ten bucks a piece. Uh, the Bird Dog Museum sells back is- back Christmas issues when they have them. Okay. And they'll usually like if you go to the Bird Dog Museum gift shop, they'll usually have you know five or six different assorted Christmas issues laying around somewhere for sale. Wow. But it it's not easy to to get a complete set. Mm-hmm. And, and but once you do cherish them, cherish them. Well, Steeple, I think we have covered a gamut of of information. Do you think we missed anything? Hope not. <laughs> I think we 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 definitely don't, don't. got. On an episode three. <laughs> well, look, yeah, look, don't be surprised if I ask you to. Uh, hop on again because you've already helped me write the uh the project upland uh article the part two pointer history so (laughs) don't be surprised if i ask you to come or come on again so you know on top of the fact that i just bug you how often do i bug you now every week (laughs) for god knows what random information are you talking about long telephone conversations or just text messages? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we were to split either one, <laughs> I think the text messages alone are enough <laughs> for, for a conversation. The long telephone conversations, I, I think there's enough in there. I probably filled up about half of a notebook on just our telephone conversations in and of itself. So, you know. But I, I definitely appreciate it, and I don't take it for granted. I'll tell you that. You're certainly welcome. I mean what I said, guys. I definitely don't take Steeple's time and energy to help me for granted. Um, he and Craig Koshik, I'm sure y'all saw the other episode and may have listened to it by now. Um, they are our generation's great historians. So when you think about Hodgewalt and all of those guys, think about Steeple Bell and Craig Koshik, guys. Here's the last of the episode.
I started looking for dogs of, that I was familiar with when I was a kid, and I uh, had a piece of poster board on the back of my closet door that I was trying to make a family tree of, you know, the offspring of those dogs and coming forward to the present. And then that sort of evolved into going backwards too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I didn't really know many, many people in the field trial community and was basically, you know, subscribed to the American field and, and reading issues and, you know, looking at the dogs who were winning and, and the siren dams that were listed for them and trying to figure out if any of those went backwards at the same time. Um, Early on, uh, I met a guy um, just over phone conversations. Um, his name was Jan Zabrecki. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and uh, he was from like Maryland or something. Um, and I met him. He, he, he ran an advertisement for some old books for sale in the American field. And I wanted real badly to buy the books from him. Uh, he wanted to sell his entire library at once. So I got to buy the two or three books I wanted, but uh, in talking with them, you know, he, he and I shared an interest and I would get these calls just out of the blue from Dan. And it was always like this really wonderful person to talk to. He was amazing that he had so many pedigrees committed to memory Something mm-hmm. um, something I've never really been able to do, and I don't know if it's just because my approach hasn't always been to look at pedigrees and I look at a family tree instead, but um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of the blanks and in the right direction of finding some of the early articles in the American field, uh, some by a guy named O.C. Keller wrote a lot about family tree of players mm-hmm. and uh, such. And um, I was able to get some of those early uh, American field articles and stuff. Um, I named Mike Husenitz up in Pennsylvania. He was very inspirational early on. He had a collection of American fields that goes way back in his basement and uh, looking up the registrations of dogs and stuff that uh, that were missing links and things I was trying to put together. Uh, you know, uh, with a few people like that. Hang on one more second. You, you just broke up on that part. Say that last part again. With the help of a few people like that, I was able to move forward and um, on the set of the field books for sale in the American field. Okay. Bought those. Bought a few different collections of people's American fields in order to keep building on what I had, you know, what I had. You know, so now I have a complete set of the field dog stud books, the ones that were published in book form. Okay. Um, that's, that's 1900 to 1947. And I have um, pretty much every issue of the American Fields from 1947 to present. And uh, 
when the American Field stopped publishing registrations, they went back to publishing the Field Dog Stud Book and pamphlet once form. It came out once every quarter, still does today. Um, you know, a subscription to that. Uh, you get four issues a year of the Field Dog Stud Book registrations, mm-hmm. and I have a com- I have a complete set of those pamphlets and stuff. So we can pretty much look up. You know, any dog, uh, if I have a, a name and a number for, I can, you know, work backwards from that. Um, there is a small batch of numbers um, in the 900,000 range numbers that were never published. And the only way to get them is, you know, directly from the American Field Office. And, you know, the people in the office have, have been pretty generous with me and, always filling in those missing like 900,000 numbers uh, when I need them. Okay. And such. And, you know, so, um, you know, when I do that uh, uh, batch of uh, the profiles of the national championship contestant dogs that get published in the field each year over the last few years, um, you know, I, I, pretty much have the resources to look up any of those pedigrees. Uh, I can, you know, sometimes it'll take looking up 10 or 20 generations of the mother dog lines, assign them to a family. Uh, most of the time they fall into the family. They, you know, they come up with a familiar name in just a few generations. Okay. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I have to look up, you know, 10 or 20 generations of, of their lineage to, to put them into the, the different families for, for those profiles. The version of the profiles that appears in the American field is uh, much more thorough than what gets put onto the Ames website. Right. And that's just because the limitations of the website, you don't want, you know, three paragraphs for each dog in the, in their brace by brace synopsis, you know, um, mm-hmm. and such. So, you know, it gets compressed, so to speak for that. But, uh, no, I never, never intended to be a writer for any of that stuff. It was just kind of things I wanted to know. Um, the national championship contestant project started out with, uh, a guy named, uh, Mike Jordan from Topeka, Kansas, uh, uh, helping me on that. He and I both shared that same interest. And um, there were a bunch of statistics about the national championship dogs in that Bill Brown book, Field Trials, that uh, we wanted to see brought up to date and such. And, you know, so the the survey articles were, you know, done between the two of us. Uh Looking that, looking up all that information, um, Mike is much more of a computer wizard than I am, and and so he would give me uh, blank spreadsheet information that I needed to fill out, and um, you know I I get the information to fill in the spreadsheet stuff, and then he would take the the spreadsheets and actually do the calculations to figure out. Mm-hmm. which was the most durable dog and, and that sort of thing and stuff. And, and we've done that for a few other 
things other than national championship contestants, but uh, the national championship contestants is by far the the largest batch of dogs that's been done that way. Right. Okay. Um, and such. Uh, but no, I never never started any of this to you know to be a field trial rider and, and such. And I have to admit, I'm probably one of the uh, worst field trial contestants. You know, that's ever tried to compete. Um, <laughs> Why so, did you but, say that? <laughs> what? what? You know, I've never had a field trial placement. You know, I've never handled a dog to a field trial placement. You ran at Ames, though, in the uh, amateur. Yeah, I've, I've run my dog at a, a number of different field trials. Uh, Ames Amateur was one that I particularly enjoyed. I tried to visit. Uh, the Ames Amateur each year to visit friends that live up in that area. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I've never been successful as far as you know handling a dog to a placement or anything, um, and such. And you know, some of that's also uh, my working situation and allowing to you know spend a great deal of time campaigning a dog, right. Or, or going to the prairies for training sessions or, you know, things like that. Right, right. Well, and, you know, I think that has a lot to do. But, I mean, you, but, you're, you're doing a whole, you know, whole lot of very, very, very important things for the field trial world. And I, I think that should be noted. You know, I know you're you're very humble, man. And, and <laughs> you know, would you tell me, you know, keep it focused on the dogs. But I needed to give you some kind of highlight, man. Yeah, well, you know, it, um, I, you know, would much rather the legacy that's I would leave behind is the information that I've recorded about the dogs. Um, I do those uh, contestant profiles each year, mm-hmm. um, and they get published. And if I'm God willing, able to do it for another have written, you know, the equivalent of what is Hawkwatt's phone book, Mm -hmm. you know, for our generation, um, you know, as a reference that people, you know, 50, 100 years from now can look back on. Right. Um, And such, you know, and, uh, there's a whole host of great field trial stories uh, being written down and recalled and such. Um, and there's a number of different writers I admire. Uh, Bill Allen's book, uh, The Unforgettables, is a wonderful little book. And Tom Words has written, written some, some nice history uh, pieces. Um, Addition to his, his uh, uh, fiction works, but uh, um, you know, there's not a lot of people that are, you know, trying to write that Hawkwall style phone book of dogs, right? Um, you know, and so I guess I'm kind of unique in that respect. Well, uh, and and see, the thing is that we also have to note. Um, we were talking about this the other day. You know, Hawkwall did it. You know, and he he had his time writing, right? 
And then we've got all of the actual trialers, right? That 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 wrote their own personal recollections. You know, for me, it's reading the Ed MacFarrier book and the Harper book. And there's a few that you recommended me for me to reach out and get also. But then there's that span of time. You know, that was up to about what the 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 six sixties probably the sixties. Even more recent than that, uh, for example, Hoyle Eaton wrote A Riggins White Knight Brag book, which is a, a really charming book mm-hmm. um, and such. Uh, um, he, you know, tells some, some great stories you, you, uh, in, in that. Uh, Riggins White Knight, Rex's Cherokee Jake, um, Redwater Rex. Um, you know, the number of great dogs he had. Right. Uh, you know, some books are written mainly as, you know, training manuals with just a little bit of, of brag about my dogs added in. Mm-hmm. Um, Ur Shelley's book yep. was one of the early ones like that. You, you know, know, he tells I really he want to get story of, of hard cash and uh, and a number of the different setters he had and right. such. I want to get that um, Shelley book to see what he said about um, Clyde Morton, you know, because he, you know they were very very close. I would I'm love not, to see. I'm not really sure there's much about Clyde Morton in that book. Let me pull it out and see if flip the pages while we're talking. But okay, I don't I don't recall there being a great deal of. Because I know Earth Shelley was one of the reasons why Clyde Morton even kind of got yes, it. He, he is. Uh, Earth Shelley uh, 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 originally worked for Mr. W.W. W. Titus, who owned that dog Pioneer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he later became the dog trainer for a guy named Paul Rainey. Um uh, Paul Rainey is just a fascinating character in, in himself and in, in, the, in the history of uh, not just bird dogs, but just the crazy stuff that he did. Um, for, for example, uh, Paul Rainey owned a coffee plantation in Kenya, and they took a pack of hound dogs that were trained to hunt bear and wolves and such in America. And they took those dogs to Africa to hunt the lions that were preying on his coffee plantation workers. Oh. And they hunted lions with hound dogs on horseback out on the African savanna. That's cool. Um, And not only that, Paul Rainey came back to America lived in Hollywood for like six months and learned how to make motion pictures when no motion pictures were in their infancy, a brand new thing. And Paul Rainey made the very first motion pictures filmed in Africa. Really? Uh, and they're in the library of Congress. And if you ever get a chance to see them, they are incredible. It shows these guys standing their ground with double rifles and lions charging at them. And when the lion leaps, they shoot it out of the air as if it's a quail. Really? I mean, it's just really incredible movies and stuff. Uh, you know, of course, it's, you know, silent, 
clickety-click kind of movies and stuff, but they're just incredible. Okay, I'm um, going to look that another, up. Another really interesting thing that Paul Rainey did was he went on safari to the Arctic, and he got out on the Arctic Ocean in a rowboat and lassoed a polar bear. What? And brought it back to the ship and brought it back to the Brooklyn Zoo. And it was the first live polar bear in captivity in a zoo. And he, he captured it by in a rowboat with a lasso. Wow. Yeah, in the Arctic Ocean. It, he just, he did all sorts of incredible, crazy stuff. Um, okay. In his lifetime. He's, he's, you know, one of the great characters of, of the bird dog world. Um, but anyway, going back to Earth Shelley, uh, uh, Clyde Morton came to work for uh, Mr. Rainey and was hired by Earth Shelley to, to work for Mr. Rainey at the time and, and then went on to uh, uh, became the, the famous handler he, he was with under the employment of uh, Mr. Sage. All right, guys, we are going to kind of wrap it up right there for this part of the episode. Um, there were a number of other pieces to it that um, we just decided to leave out. I mean, we, there's a, a, a ton of history that we just, you know, for sake of time. And, and, and we really wanted to kind of transition over, um, you know, we, we just just cut it out. Um, but anyway. Guys, that was another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast, and I appreciate y'all hanging in there uh, with me for these three and a half hours. I know it was uh, a lot of information thrown, um, and I'm just trying to be as thorough as I can. You know, this is part of one of my many legacy projects, and I hope you enjoy it. So with that being said, I want to thank all of my sponsors, Onyx, Hunt, Yuganuba Sporting Dog, Affiliates, Lion Country Supply, and Garmin Fish and Hunt, guys. Next week, we will have some more good info coming up soon. Stay tuned.